Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. Friends, for the first time since this year began, we have a week where we did not have a new episode of a Star Wars show, but we did just have Star Wars Celebration that Danielle, written in the Star Wars, attended. And so I've got her and Professor Matthew Capel here. We're going to talk about kind of the current state of Star Wars, the, the wrapping up of the two big shows that we had and thoughts on those and thoughts on all the stuff that got revealed at Star Wars Celebration, all the places we're going, all the things that Danielle might have seen that us poor peasants on the internet who weren't there got haven't hit to her yet. All that and more after commercial break. We have no control over. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host, uh, They Them Pronouns. As I said, I'm joined by two awesome guests. First, uh, you may have heard him a couple of times, both on this podcast and on the Star, uh, Superhero Ethics podcast, Professor Matthew Capel. Uh, Matthew, please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm uh, Matthew Capel. I teach American studies, but also anthropology and history and stuff um, because I went to school for way too long um, and um, did a book on Star Wars once a long time ago. In, in, a, but, in a galaxy that was not very far away, I guess. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But in academic. Uh, and yeah. And Danielle. Yeah, I'm Danielle, written in the Star Wars on TikTok and DannyS394 on Twitter. And I am a PhD researcher, almost done as well. Uh, <laughs> at the very end, I'm so close. Uh, so if my TikTok is not as active right now, that is why, because I am barely making it through on that PhD. <laughs> but I'll get back soon, especially to talk about, uh, you know, news from Celebration and everything. So look forward that to that. <laughs> that that is a an awesome idea. Uh, I look forward to having both of you getting two PhDs on here, so that my lowly but with my lowly master's degree, uh, I don't know. I think I go into debt just by having both you on. But you know, it'll be great. Uh, I love that <laughs> yeah, perspective. Definitely could. <laughs> um, so Matthew, let me start with you because I haven't gotten to have you on much. We're at the we we finished these two different seasons that overlapped a lot. What's your kind of feeling about where we are with the various Star Wars stories? So I'm going to start by being negative. Actually, you know what? No, I'm going to start by being positive. Um, first off, um, I want to publicly agree with Danielle that Hunter's tattoo goes all the way down. <laughs> you saw that video. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but secondly, now I will be somewhat negative. Um, I really expected, considering the overlap between The Mandalorian and um, Bad Batch, that we would get a more cohesive overlap before the end. Um, and they just didn't pull mm. it off, I don't think. But to be honest, both Bad Batch and The Mandalorian weren't particularly great for me this season. Hmm. Fair. Any particular reasons or just did not click for you in certain ways? Well, okay, so there's... the, the, um, the My two main problems with Star Wars all weeks are um, the slavery of droids and the poverty of everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, I used to be a geneticist a long time ago. And um, so the clone stuff always gets to me. Um, and it, mm -hmm. it gets to me because it's really an ethical dilemma. Um, and if they're going to deal with it, I think they need to deal with it more head on. And I, I, I'm just, I'm still waiting for that to happen. And I've been, I've been waiting since, since Qui-Gon did the midichlorian count in 1999 for them to take it on and they still haven't so it's it's becoming problematic for me so din and bo katan murdering eight versions of uh, moff gideon was not your favorite moment <laughs> um it, it 
both was not my favorite moment, even though I wanted him gone. Um, but the way they present it is this doesn't really count as the killing of somebody because it's just clones, um, which has been the problem. And I will say that Clone Wars, the TV show, did an okay job, but not a great job with that. Um, and um, mostly because the character of Anakin Skywalker is a lousy leader. Um, but with that said, I was hoping for more emotional heft to things like that, and I'm still not getting it. The emotional heft I'm getting is, I have the Darksaber, which is great, but not fantastic. Gosh, I sound horrible. I sound like a really horrible <laughs> <laughs> oh, No, no. So, I mean, overall, I, overall, both, I really like both The Mandalorian and, and, and Bad Batch this season. <laughs> Just, I still have problems that are out there hanging. That's where I'll stop. It, the reason why I like having you and others on is I know that it's like, I mean, uh, Danielle and AJ Starkiller, we all were on to talk about how much we liked Andor and then pretty much did a whole episode about all the things we didn't like uh, and, and all the problems that we had, especially in terms of the, the lack of the immigration story and things like that. So uh, all, always welcome. Uh, not <clears throat> all things I agree with or disagree with, but uh, Danielle, I'll give you first chance to respond. Um, no, I completely understand where you're coming from with the clone aspect. What I, how I approach it with Star Wars is that I think a lot of us want them to tell stories that they're not prepared to tell. <laughs> and I don't know if they'll ever be prepared to tell that. Um, and so I kind of look at it as, um, to avoid my own disappointment, I look at it as, you know, this is the story, this is the type of story they've told before. I can hope for progression in some aspects, but not in every aspect. But I completely understand where you're coming from. One of my biggest things is uh, after I became so obsessed with the clones and so like in tune with their story going back to watch the clone wars can be hard because they're killed left and right and yeah. only very rarely do does the story itself take time to deal with that death and um and so i completely understand where you're coming from with that i absolutely agree um whether or not they'll actually address it any more than they already have, I, I have no idea. I don't have high hopes for that. Um, yeah. But as far as this season goes, I, I greatly enjoyed the Bad Batch season two. Um, I think that by the end of the season, it became clear what the point of the season was, which was the Bad Batch trying to find who they are in this galaxy now that their initiative is no longer to save Crosshair. Uh, it's to do something else. It's to figure out what they're trying to do. Uh, and it was a growing season in that, I think. I expect season three, now that we know it's going to be the last season, to be more of a culmination of what season two was trying to get at. Um, mm -hmm. For The Mandalorian, I... <laughs> my... I don't think that this season was a critically good season. I don't think it holds up well to a critical lens. But once I decided that for myself, I thought, is that what I wanted from The Mandalorian when I first started watching it? No. <laughs> I just yeah. wanted a fun story about, you know, a Mandalorian and his kid. And the biggest worry I had going into this season was that they were going to completely butcher Bo-Katan and her narrative. And I thought the one actually good thing they did this season 
that does hold up somewhat well to a critical lens is Bogotan's story. And so I was very happy with that. Um, again, I don't think it holds up well to a critical lens. I do have a lot of issues and complaints about it, but by the end, that last scene, I was happy and I'm not used to being just completely happy at the end of a Star Wars project. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, especially coming off of the Bad Batch season two, where I was ripped apart and sobbing, it was nice to have an ending that was peaceful. Uh, yeah. Whether or not it's ending to their story, it was nice to have that where it's not leaving me in tears of sorrow, but, you know, tears of like, oh, this is nice. They get to have a little bit of peace. So I did like yeah. that. Um, but again, I, I don't think that it's perfect. And I do think it has quite a bit of issues. Yeah, I think those are some good points. I think I'm probably a little higher on both on both of them, especially Mandalorian than I think either of you. But I definitely see some problems. Um, and I want to speak just generally, but then get to some of the specifics you all have raised. And also, um, just to point out, uh, so another pot episode that I think will come out before this one, but I just recorded it last night with Paul and Aaron, later Lady Tano Creates, and then Paul Zen Madman, where we talked a lot about the end of The Bad Batch, as well as in the Patreon section, we talked about um, how we felt about Mandalorian. And I think one of the comments that I made there that I think is true is, Mandalorian season one was written as like all of the best minds of Star Wars coming together to prove that Star Wars on TV could work and focusing all of their creative attention and energy. Mandalorian season three is written while Filoni is also involved in Bad Batch and the Ahsoka show. And there's so much going on that it kind of doesn't surprise me that the creative minds are a lot more distracted, you know, and it's not, it's just not as focused. And I agree. There's definitely some stuff that I didn't like. Um, but I thought, as you were saying, Danielle, I, I thought Bo-Katan's story was fabulously done. And one of the, I think that Din Djarin actually had much more of an arc than a lot of people seem to also talk about. Cause to me, the arc that I saw was the end of last season where he says, I don't think you're a real Mandalorian. I don't care about the planet. I don't care about the Darksaber. You have this sword. You do what you want. All the way to this season where it was, I not only recognize that you are a Mandalorian, even though you don't follow my creed, I think you are the natural leader of Mandalorians. I'm going to once again offer you the Darksaber as a sign of how much I think you you are a leader. And And to me, the way that that kind of was the the counterpoint of her journey of I need the saber to be a leader to I am a leader therefore I deserve the saber that was so well done that I was willing to overlook a lot of things that were a little bit on the sillier <laughs> side um but I also think Mecha Grogu was something I never knew I needed that is it goofier <laughs> than anything in season one absolutely but it's Mecha Grogu so I I'm here for it. See, I loved, I loved the goofy stuff. The episode with yeah. Jack Black and Lizzo, I was, was so I was good. dying the whole time. <laughs> well, so with them, good. I, I just, I never question when Jack Black is in anything. I just see him and yeah. I'm like, yes, it makes sense. Okay. <laughs> and like the two of them, I think of them from such different worlds, but they worked so well together. Really I was like, of course too. they'd be a couple. Like, <laughs> let me actually though touch on the question that Matthew raised because I think it's an interesting one and, and Danielle I know you've thought about this a lot because when I've talked with you about the Bad Batch about the Bad Batch but also about Clone Wars one thing we talked about a lot was this idea of 
yeah, the 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 sort of trap for the Jedi is that they're they're supposed to think of them as not really fully alive and to just you know be willing to sacrifice them as part of war, and that's how the everyone sees them. But we, the audience, get to understand that the clones have a full humanity. Um. So what then does that? What did 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 Bo and uh, uh, Jaren destroy medical military technology? Did they kill eight people who would have been Moff Gideons but were still, you know, on ice or not activated? Yeah. What What do you think of the the moral weight of uh, those clones that were destroyed? Well, I want to touch first on the Jedi and how they viewed clones, because I actually don't think they viewed them as disposable. I think they were mm-hmm. one of the few people uh, in the Republic who didn't view them that way. And that's what made the tragedy of Order 66 even more mm-hmm. of a tragedy. It wasn't just the clones losing their agency. It was the clones being forced to kill the only people who actually respected them and viewed them as individuals. Yeah. Um, but... So I- I, I should have stated that better. What it meant was that they were put in a position where the the war was encouraging them to see them oh. as, but yeah. but clearly they didn't, and that yeah. was the yeah. that was the fatal struggle for the, yeah. the Jedi. Sorry, Sorry I always get defensive of the Jedi. <laughs> no, no, please do, please do. Um, but as to the question about Moff Gideon's clones uh, and the way that Din Djarin handled them, um, God, I don't know. See, I try to think. Sometimes and obviously I don't know because I'm not John Favreau. I'm not in the writing room with them when they're writing this. But there are sometimes, particularly throughout this season, where I've wondered if that was even a thought in their mind as to mm. what Din killing these clones says about morality or says about agency or anything, or was it just a, a means to an end? on the writer's part. Um, I try not to think too heavily about that, but I'm a writer myself. And so it, I, I can't help, but, but think, you know, was that even a thought in their mind when they were doing that? Because if it was, why didn't we spend more time with that? Why didn't we, you know, get more of a more yeah. time spent with the idea that Moff Gideon made clones of himself? Uh, we didn't know this until literally like an episode before. So, I don't know. Um, I think that there are definitely moral discussions to be had about it, but I, I don't know how deep it can go if it, as I think, and again, I could very well be wrong, that it wasn't a thought in the writer's minds as to the morality of it. So I don't, I don't know. I think it's an interesting discussion yeah. regardless. I'm going to interrupt then um, because here's the issue and it was inherent in the way Matthew talked about this. So... If the clones had not been destroyed, would they have been eight or whatever Moff Gideons? That's the hidden problem here. The assumption that his genetics are what makes him evil. Mm. Oh, yes. Mm. I see. I see where that's coming from. Yes. I mean, for all we know, they could have been because they also had the genetics, the genetics for the force. Um, They also had that. They could be like incredibly great, wonderful Jedi with the right upbringing and the right environment and the and, and the right kind of relationships in their lives. Not just, I've made clones of myself, like some IV doctor using his own sperm. Um, yeah. Instead, we have this assumption that if we don't destroy them, they will be bad. And I think that yeah. is the big problem. Okay. I, I'm yes. only chuckling 
Go ahead, Danielle. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I see where you're going with that. And I, on that, I do agree. And I think that that's something they've... Which is surprising because they do touch on this with the clone, like with the Jango Fett clones as to how they're individuals and no two are the same. They act differently. They have like, that's why, you know, so many clone fans have our favorite clone and then someone has a different favorite clone because they're not the same. They're different. And one discussion we have in the clone fandom as well is that you can't just say that all the clones are inherently good or inherently bad either. You can't say that one of them wouldn't do an atrocious act because that also takes away their humanity um, and their right to choose and their ability right. to choose. And so like the reverse also can be said when it comes to Moff Gideon, who has become this evil person. And that there are inherent issues with saying that because he's currently a bad person, that his genetics would then produce an inherently bad person. Uh, right. And so, yeah, that's actually, that's a very interesting thought that I hadn't, hadn't thought of before. Thank you. I, I really love the train of thought here. I'll respond to it in a second, but I, I had to chuckle as you're saying it because the image that came to my head was like, if we therefore think of like, you know, once these clones get turned on and activated, and, and that also I think is a big part of the moral questioning as well is has that happened yet? Or, you know, are they people yet? At what point does a, uh, a, 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 a physically built body become a person uh that i mean that's theological and 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 metaphysical and all but the image i had is okay so let's say like that they, they did the jedi did claim get the you know or whoever it is you know luke takes these eight clones like okay i'm gonna raise them as you know to be good jedi the image of a you know like 50 year old one carlo esposito acting as a six-year-old among other jedi younglings is really appealing to me <laughs> i don't think we're ever gonna get that but um but yeah, I think it great. I think it raises all kind of great questions, and I think kind of going. On the one hand, I'd love to really do like superhero ethics, diving into all these questions. But I think, and this is kind of what Matt you were getting at originally, and Danielle, what you really put your finger on. It feels to me like with both the clones and the droids, they have the moral weight that the plot wants them to have in that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I remember there are specific episodes of Clone Wars where you would have some droids you know, getting these wonderful character arcs that were all about, like, no, droids are sentient beings. They are people. We should respect them as sentient beings. And then in the same episode, a battle droid would get killed in a, oh, look how hilarious it is that this battle droid is terrified in the last moments of its sentient existence. <laughs> and you're kind of like, guys, guys, pick a lane. Pick a moral lane here. <laughs> so, um, but, but in saying that they have the... the mm, the moral weight that the episode needs is just to say that they're a plot device. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's also kind of mm -hmm. objectionable. Mm -hmm. Right. Though it, well, but it's we, important to recognize that we are not the people that they make this stuff for really when it comes right down to it. Yeah. So we, we might yeah. be a little, mm -hmm. so yeah, I just want to but look, it, be careful it, with it, my it, critiques. It, it, <laughs> if our, if I wasn't here to add moral and philosophical analysis to things that were never intended to be it, you know, <laughs> my podcast wouldn't exist. So, but every, but me, everything is moral. Everything. Exactly. Uh, let me shift to to another thing about the end of these shows that I wanted to um, uh, get both your thoughts on, but especially I'll start with Danielle because uh, we talked about the tears, uh, the Bucky Barnesing of tech. Um, <laughs> How, what what was your feeling about the the way that show ended with for him? Well, okay, so I'm 
actually the unpopular opinion amongst clone fans of it making sense, and I'm not disappointed by it. Um, mm-hmm. I it was something that I knew was a possibility, but I didn't think they would do. It felt right. too risky for Star Wars to do that. And oftentimes Star Wars doesn't take the riskier option. And I am, I love The Last of Us, especially part two. So anyone who knows Last of Us part two knows that if you love that, you have to love um, risky storytelling and, you know, creators really putting it all on the line and saying, people are probably gonna hate this. I don't care. There's gonna be someone out there who loves it and this is what the story needs. And so, the fact that they took that risky step in my mind, knowing how a bunch of clone fans would react, um, is I respect them for that. And I think that it was a choice that made sense. I do wish that, and this isn't just in star Wars, this isn't just in the bad batch. It's storytelling all over the place. Um, that it wasn't so tropey to have a character, have such good character growth and then kill them off at the end. Um, I am grateful that they gave us that time with tech. I do wish that we had seen it earlier so that it wouldn't have been like, oh my God, yeah, we're getting all this character growth. And then, oh, he's dead. (laughs) Um, I am still to, to ease my pain because this was very painful for me. I'm not the number one tech stan. I like him. I'm not like, he's not my favorite clone, but I do like him. And it was still very painful for me. Um, I don't know that I've cried that hard since Rogue One. Yeah, the Rogue One was the last time I cried that hard in Star Wars. And um, so to help my pain with things, I think I'm still going to say that he's not really dead. However, I have slowly come to the conclusion for myself that I would rather him be dead than be Winter Soldiered because I feel like that would be a disrespect to his character. Now, if he is... I'll deal with it. It's fine. He'll still be alive. So I win either way. Um, But yeah, that's where I stand on that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Um, Tech seems to me to be the clone most obviously representing people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's very spectrum-y. And Mm -hmm. I'm upset by the loss of that representation. Absolutely. Is that is that a thing that is worthwhile to be upset about, or is there something else? No, absolutely. A lot of people, a lot of clone fans are um, neurodivergent as well, and so I know a lot of them were upset by that. As uh, you know, he is the most obviously, even if it's not directly stated, it's still clearly in the subtext. Um, that he is also on the spectrum neurodivergent and people were upset at the loss of that as well. And I think that that is something absolutely understandable to be upset by that. Um, Where I come from with it is that there's a difference between being upset by it and saying that it doesn't, didn't make sense if that makes sense. Like, you know what I mean? Or that didn't make sense for the story based on everything that we saw or that it was, um, that it was a a death that wasn't earned or something, um, or didn't make sense for his character. It helped me a lot listening to Dee Bradley 
Baker talk about it um, mm-hmm. at Celebration, which I'll talk about later. But basically, he was saying that tech is very close to him. He said that tech is the clone that he most relates to. And so the death mm-hmm. was very difficult for him. And um, how he consoles himself is that is a death that any clone trooper would have wanted for themselves because it is a death that they got to choose and a death that helps the people they cared most about live. And so that has helped me with it as well. But absolutely. I think people have a right to be upset about it. Uh, I've, I'm upset for my own reasons, but I, I would never say that, you know, no one has, shouldn't be upset because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I think I'm really with where both of you are coming from. And, and what I would, first, just on the neurodivergence part, uh, that is someone who really identified with tech for those reasons, mm-hmm. especially because, as you said, Danielle, they had done this kind of tropey thing of like setting him up. Uh, that, and, and I'll just say this part now, like, honestly, not that I wish that I was sobbing and crying and that I, I, I'm glad you had that experience, but I, I didn't feel as emotionally affected by the death of Tech as I think I would have because I saw it coming a mile away. Mm. And I hate that. And I hate that, you know, spe- you know, Fee, uh, Fee said that line that was something like, you know, it, you know, it was something about like, you know, well, when I see you again, and I was like, oh, well, he's dead now. Um, <laughs> and I think so that was hard, but also that his neurodivergence had been not in a cruel way, but in season one had been somewhat the object of humor. Yeah. And it was in season two, like the arc that kind of sets him up for death is so much about his neurodivergence Mm -hmm. and about him and Omega having this beautiful connection where, um, sorry, here's where I'm getting emotional, you know, because it's not just that he says, oh, I was totally wrong. It's that he says, you have to understand I don't express things the same way you do, but it doesn't mean I don't feel. And, mm-hmm. I, and I apologize for repeating myself. I commented this on the other podcast. As someone who's been a marital counselor and a relationship counselor for 20 years, the number of times I've seen people be hurt because they both experience something and they think if you don't react in a way I understand, it means you're not feeling it in the way that I am. And so therefore yeah. you're not. And, and that's exactly what they go through. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, for me to, to losing neuro neurodivergence representation as always sucks. Frankly, I think we're going to get it back with Echo because I think that they, they both share that in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. although his is very different. Um, but but the fact that it was that, the fact that it, you saw this coming a mile away, and as I said, the uh, I'm glad you picked up on my Bucky Barnes comment. Like, <laughs> I, I agree. For me, it was also part of what helped stop me from feeling the death as much is because I have I fully expected him to come back by the end of the episode. Yeah. Or or the early the next season. And I want death to matter. Yeah. Um so yeah, that that's all all that makes sense. And um sorry. <sighs> yes, I am affected by it more than I thought. Um Well, can I can ahead. I say something? I heard I've seen multiple people say this, actually. Um, And I can't remember if someone said it at the Bad Batch panel, too. But um, someone was talking about how that beautiful conversation that Tech and Omega have, uh, not just about her, them needing to meet each other where they're at, Mm -hmm. as far as the way that they express their emotions, but also about, you know, Tech saying, preparing her to move on you know, accept that someone is gone or not with you and move on. He did that so that she could move past Echo being gone. 
but he was preparing her unknowingly to move on after his death, to be able to move on yeah. after his death. And that is heartbreaking. <laughs> like really? that hurts. It's, it's, so a, bad. It's, a, it's a very Filoni thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, it really is. He once said that Anakin had trained Ahsoka her whole life to fight somebody just like Darth Vader. Mm. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, so it seems very felony to me. Yeah, yeah. And Jennifer Corbett. I... <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. forget her. One last thing I want to say in this, because because uh, Danielle, I kind of want to bring this up and pass you the mic because I know it's one you have a lot of thoughts on. I get why there are so many people who are upset about tech dying, and and though I disagree, you know, as you said, I'm glad you you pointed out that like it, it's. It's not great that people therefore think the death didn't work or didn't make sense. The, the part of the fandom that I've kind of been most troubled about this is the ones who are therefore just blaming it entirely on Saul Guerrero oh, and that it's yeah. all Saul's fault. And I, I, I'll just give you that introduction and let you kind of take it away. Well, on one hand, I understand people want when you're going through the pain of the loss of your favorite character, you want something or someone easily to blame it on. And you want it to be right in your face. You don't want it to be this idea. I think sometimes in Star Wars we get uh, kind of numb to the idea of the Empire and the effect that they have. Because they're always there. They're just like an ever-present thing for so long in Star Wars. That's where Star Wars started was with the Empire. And so you get so used to it being there that you forget how... Um, like how vicious they are, how ingrained they are in everything, how every choice that the higher ups make has a domino effect that leads to what pain you're experiencing. And so I think it's, it's natural to want something more tangible to blame and, mm -hmm. and put your anger towards, especially a character that, you know, you're going to see again, or that you're going to see in other projects or see so often in other projects, and especially a character who has routinely been villainized, um, and, and many times mischaracterized. Uh, mm -hmm. and so Saw is there, but Saw, Saw didn't order the flight, the, the planes to go after the ships, to go after them. He didn't order them to attack the batch. He offered the batch to go with him to help him. And yeah, he made a mistake in not seeing where the batch was coming from, but the batch made a mistake in not seeing where saw was coming from. And in, in, in saw being kind of, you know, narrow-minded in wanting to blow up this and put a dent in the empire, the batch was narrow-minded in wanting to find out where Crosshair was. And yeah. there it's, you know, they both made mistakes. They both uh, didn't do what they arguably should have done. But Tech's death was not a result of that. Tech's death was a result of Tarkin ordering them to be gunned down. And they even said this at the Bad Batch panel, which I was so thankful for. They didn't say Saw's not to blame, but they said the Batch would have escaped if Tarkin hadn't ordered them to be shot down. Mm. And I feel like that was a very clear way of Jennifer Corbett saying, stop blaming Saw Gerrera, because even with <laughs> what he did, they still could have escaped if it wasn't for Tarkin. And yeah. the Empire is the issue here. The Empire has ruined the lives of so many people, including Saw. And this is just another life that it ruined. Yeah.
I'm going to not say anything. Uh, but um, but I, I, I've always had a... I, the Saw Gerrera character is a great background character, and I'm glad that it exists as a character. I don't much... Yeah. I, I, I'm never appreciative when um, Forrest Whitaker shows up to show that he can also act badly as well as wonderfully. Um, and I, I think he was just horrible in Rogue One um, by overacting way too much. Um, but that said, I think Danielle is exactly correct that um, when you lose a character that you adore, you want to put blame somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate that they're picking Saw because it is, I think, pretty clearly not Saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... I, I do just need to defend Mr. Whitaker that I think that he I don't think he's overacting. I think he simply had the same appetite for scenery and scenery chewing that many of his predecessors had. Um, <laughs> but but putting that aside, yeah, I, 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 I think he's easy to blame. I think to me, and this, this is a whole other can of worms I don't really want to go too deep into, but I I when I see people who will super praise someone like Luthen mm. and then be very critical of Saw and, and you know, what separates those two characters? Well, they're, one of them's a lot darker than the other. And I don't think that is not of, there's lots of other factors. I'm not saying it's all just that simple, but it, when Saw is so easily made the scapegoat or the like, well, A, it's the, when he's blamed, but Luthen isn't, I sort of raise an eyebrow, but also you know, I saw a lot of stuff that was about like, oh no, but he's a terrorist. He's not a rebel. He's a terrorist. And it's just, that's a whole other moral question that we can get into about how we draw the lines of what is morally acceptable and what is not. Mm -hmm. um, but I, it, it saddens me that I think that Saw is one of the most complex and kind of as you were talking about before, uh, Danielle, I think risky characters that Star Wars has given us because yeah. he's often an antagonist, but often he's not wrong. Yeah. And 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 I think that's something that just, it's it's an awful lot of nuance that the kind of binary good, bad, light side, dark side idea that I think too many people have about Star Wars can easily get missed. Yeah, I think it also depends on who's writing him. Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm not one to say that anyone's written him significantly better than anyone else. But I do think that when his character is in it, when it leans too far to the oh, he's absolutely bad. He's the bad of the rebels. He's the he's right. the, the stain on the rebellion that is making them look bad. I'm like, no, he is the, the fist the rebellion used to attack the Empire until they decided that they didn't want to use him anymore. And um, he, he did what they needed to break through, and then they discarded of him. Once they broke through, mm -hmm. then they could do the political stuff. Then they could do all of the the negotiations of the rebellion right. and, um, and then cast him aside and blamed everything on him. Uh, and so I think people don't want to look at it that way. Sometimes they want to see the rebellion as, you know, Mon Mothma, this very polished and clean thing as Leia, as, um, as you know, Luke, this good kid who goes in and saves the day. They don't want to see it as the messy thing that it is because revolution is messy. And yeah. I think people want to be revolutionaries until they realize just how messy it can get. One of the best Re academic rebels don't Good. rebels don't succeed by being polite. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, George Washington was a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. 
there's a wonderful book that I read um, uh, when I was in grad school called Martin and Malcolm in America. That's a great book. And it's all book. about, it, yeah, it's about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and how, the, especially about how they were a lot more similar in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the things that it often, it, it, to some extent, and the class that it was about was, was about those two, but also about how what happened with those two is such a, 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 a great example of what happens with rebellious movements throughout history which is that we always want to remember the very peaceful, nice one who's saying, hey, please, can we have more rights and vilify the ones who are, you know, outside banging on the gates, yelling, give us our rights or else. Yeah. But uh, there's a great line in the book that I can't exactly remember. But it basically said that, like, Martin, Martin Luther King understood that people listened to him because, you know, what, what King was able to say was something like either listen to me or deal with him. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's that that. That dynamic happens throughout, and while it's been very clear, I think, that Magneto, Professor X, are not those two characters exactly, they are capturing that dynamic of the one group that's saying, let's peacefully work with you, and the other saying, we're going to fight you. And I think you're right that in that same kind of a way, without someone like Saw, Mon Mothma doesn't get listened to. Yeah. Leia doesn't get listened to in the same way. And, mm -hmm. and you need that tension between the two. And I think what's also interesting about him is that he wasn't necessarily as pro-Republic pro as some of the other uh, rebellion met leaders were, because yeah. he was on a Separatist planet and he saw the evils of the Separatists and the evils of the Republic. And I think he is like the epitome of anti-fascist because he doesn't, mm -hmm. he sees the fascism and um, the, the bad side of every leading government because he's experienced it. He's experienced what yeah. that can do. He didn't just witness horrors from the empire. He witnessed horrors before that as well. And I think if he had been a bigger part, you know, allowed to stay a leader of the rebellion, he might have questioned some of the choices Mon Mothma yeah. made after um, they took down the empire, such as, you know, Mon Mothma getting rid of the, uh, the rebel alliance. He would have questioned that. He probably would have kept his own sect and been like, uh, no, we're still going to go and protect this because it's still too new. And it's things like that where you have to wonder if he had been a part of it, if he had you know, lived past Rogue One and been a part of it for longer and allowed more agency in that, um, if things might have been a little bit different. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about him and Cham Sandula never meet in canon, right? <laughs> Because I think that I think of them as very similar, especially yeah. in Cham having just such Cham is Hera's father, uh, you know, from from Rebels, but in both Clone Wars and Rebels, <clears throat> he's always very clear. Like his loyalty is to Ryloth, and yeah. that's against the Separatists, against the Republic. Uh, I don't th I don't think we have seen him in the Rep in the Empire era, but I'm sure that you know he would be doing something similar. I think he's in um, Dark Lords of the Sith. Oh, the book. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. I think he is. Um, um, but I know you're right. And they both have troubling relationships with their daughters. <laughs> yeah, also true. Also very true. That's a good point. Um, there's one last thing I want to ask on this, and because and, it's such an interesting theory question to chew on for a bit, and then let's get to celebration itself. A, a theory that I put out on the, the coverage we did of the end of the Bad Batch season, I'm curious your thoughts on, is that if you go back to the original Star Wars movies, you know, one of the primary ideas of the force is this idea that i think in the and to me this goes very much into that like you know be the nice rebels and not the the angry rebels is you know 
it, it is okay to fight injustice or to fight evil. But if you start to, if you work out of your anger against injustice, if you work out of your hate against injustice, if you want revenge for the injustice that's been done to you, that, that at least if you're a force user, that's going to turn you to the dark side. You know, that it's the given to your anger, given to your hate. Saw, I feel like, is kind of the living embodiment of that. Mm. At least as it's sometimes portrayed, that he is the one who is acting out of hate, out of anger, out of vengeance for what happened to his sister and his planet and all that. And I wonder if part of what we're getting, like, so the, that there's so many ways to go with that. But to me, a lot of it's about that maybe, like, from a, a force user, you just can't be, you can't go that far. But someone like him can. Uh, and also that, like, the changing attitudes we have in our own society towards that. That's a lot. Today, I think we're actually a lot more understanding of, like, no, acting out of anger is, is angered injustice is a good thing. And, and there's some dangers to it, but there's some worthwhileness too as well. Okay, curious on your... Someone interrupt me by, by telling me why I'm wrong or, or right or go ahead. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to get past the fact that Star Wars is a narrative that started during the tail end of the hippie 70s um, joy of sex kind of books everywhere. <laughs> um, just like this, this certain kind of feeling about the world that a certain part of the American population at that time had. Um, that did not last even with them right mm. um, but so the the kind of like new agey oh look i've got a crystal and it makes a sword for me um kind of feel is something that we're not going to get rid of um mm-hmm. and and so we, we argue about saw because he doesn't fit that mm. yeah right um and yeah, I, I think having more types of people is always better mm. yeah yeah and I'm I think all uh, the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, the reason Saw is allowed is can go as far as, as he does without, I don't think he becomes corrupt. I think that he does mm-hmm. to the end have what he says he has, which is clarity of purpose. He yeah. understands, I think, better than most of the rebellion leaders what the purpose, what the true purpose, what the heart, the purpose of the rebellion is and what it needs to be done to get there. Um, and he is the only one willing to do that. And I, but you make a good point about force users not being able to do that because they have powers that Saul will never have as a non-force yeah. user. Um, they have the ability to make things so much worse. They have the ability, I think, to channel their anger in a much more destructive way than Saw ever would. And I think it's always very important to point out that Saw never intentionally sought out to harm civilians. Yeah. Uh, he just sought out to harm the Empire and the people leading the Empire. And Um, where that becomes murky, I think with force users is that all of that corrupts them in such a, um, such a focal way that Mm -hmm. they end up not caring. They end up not caring who they hurt and sometimes willingly and, you know, voluntarily hurting the people that have nothing to do with anything. As we see with Anakin, I think, very clearly in the original trilogy, but also in Kenobi, like, man, is it clear in Kenobi that he just doesn't care <laughs> who he yeah. hurts. Um, and yeah, so I think that's the big difference is that Saw can go that far 
and maintain that clarity of purpose and not let it corrupt him to the point where he is always harming civilians on purpose. I think towards the end of his life is when it gets a little murky because he gets very paranoid. And that's what we see in Rogue One is him being so paranoid that he can't trust anybody because he's been betrayed so many times. So. Right. And I think you make a really good point that he, he starts down some of those roads, but doesn't go to the natural conclusion you think. And yeah. like, you know, think about how often in both media and in our own world, there's this idea of, I think I know best about how to fight this injustice. And if you don't agree with me, then you're my enemy and I'm going to turn on you, yeah. you know, and that, uh, I mean, that's every Batman villain ever to some extent. <laughs> um, uh, and, and as well as just in, in our own world. And he never, he never attacks Mon Mothma or the other rebels for not agreeing what he wants to do. Yeah. You know, he, he holds that line. The other thing that I think is interesting and I'm, I'm cautious about this, but here's a great segue into celebration that I didn't just think of right this moment, I promise. Um, I see as did. But, like, I thought it's really interesting that in the instances we're getting of Force users after the fall of the Republic, you know, putting aside Luke, Kane and Ezra act out of emotion. At t- they act out of anger at times, and it doesn't, you know, turn them evil. Kanan has attachments. It doesn't turn him to the dark side. Uh, Ray, her anger at at Ben and at the Emp- at the First Order and all these things often drives her. It doesn't turn her to the dark side. It leaves me really excited that maybe, and again, this might be too much of a risk they're willing to take, but I- at least in those new movies with Ray, I'm really excited that maybe we're not just going to rebuild the Jedi Order in the way Mace and Yoda would love, but maybe we're going to look at like. Is there something to be said for that there's a place for anger? There's a place for some of these things uh, as a Jedi, as a Force user. Um, so that being said, let's let's go into celebration and talk about uh, the Ray movies. Because um, I think that that's kind of the, the big ticket thing. There's a lot of big ticket things, but I'll just start with you. Uh, uh, Danielle, what... Where were you? What was it like when that was announced and how would you react? Uh, so I didn't get into the Lucasfilm uh, showcase panel, but I chose instead to go quickly get some books that I wanted right as soon as I got through. And then I went to go queue for the Andor panel. And so I was in the queue for the Andor panel. We were there for like three hours. <laughs> I was in the queue for the Andor panel because I wanted to make sure I was in the room where Diego Luna was going to be. Um it, when the, it got but, on Twitter. By the and, way, for my American listeners, Danielle has gone a bit native. Yeah. She, what she means is waiting in line. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, go on. That's no, okay. Um, so I was there waiting to get into the Andor panel when uh, it went on Twitter, when people were tweeting about it who were in the showcase. Uh, and I said, there's going to be... A, a new Ray movie, Daisy Ridley's on the stage, and me and everyone around me just, like, broke down, because there's me and a bunch of other uh, women and femmes, and who Ray means a lot to, to us, and we've always just been very worried that, you know, the fandom scared away Daisy Ridley, she'd never come back, even though there's so much more to tell about her story, and, um, to find out that there was going to be a Ray movie, not only that, but she came to Celebration was just... It was, I didn't realize she was there. there yeah, amazing. she was on the stage. There was so much joy around me. And I know that there were some people trying to tweet that no one cheered or that people booed. 
you could hear the cheers coming. I was right outside the live st- the celebration stage where Daisy Ridley was, and you could hear the screaming and the cheers and uh, the applause, and the people around me were crying. <laughs> like we had tears in our eyes and everything. It was a really beautiful moment, and I still. Like that whole weekend, I would find myself remembering that that happened. I was like, oh my God, this wasn't like this actually happened. Daisy Ridley's coming back to Star Wars. We're getting a Ray movie directed by a woman, directed by a woman of color, no less. Um, and that was, it was just a wonderful moment. Being there was, for that, was amazing. I can only imagine what it was like in the actual room where it was happening. Yeah, that, that really makes me happy to hear because I, I remember seeing that tweet and thinking, like, I am so excited about this and I'm so dreading what's going to happen on the internet for the next eight hours. And it feels to me, and and I want to hear, especially from you, Matthew, but also from both of you, more your thoughts on this, but it feels to me like one of the things that has happened over the last couple of weeks, and and honestly, it started with Ahmed Best coming back and being a Jedi, uh, the person who played Jar Jar Binks, who got all that horrible horrible you know, horrible things happened to him because of the racism of fans and and the way he was treated um it feels like they've learned their lesson because i i remember it wasn't that long ago when you know characters like like uh Finn and Rose and and their actors were being horribly attacked by the fans and it felt like the movies kind of capitulated a bit mm-hmm. and like you know gave Rose and gave Finn a much smaller yeah. part never made him the force user and never actually explored like what was happening with him and Ray or him and Poe, but that's an even riskier thing, but <laughs> one that I want. Um, and it just felt like everything from like, no, we're bringing Ahmed Best back. We're doing all these other things up to saying like, no, this, after all these people who've been uh, to also having so much of the story of both bad batch and Mandalorian be like, Hey, look, that movie you keep wanting us to retcon. We're setting up all the pieces that get there we're not retconning it. This just felt like it was just a Star Wars has finally clearly said, we understand that a part of our fandom is angry about what we're doing. We're not going to cater to them. We, you know, there's the door. If you don't like it, this is the direction we're going in. No more holding back. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it really started. Well, I, they probably had already filmed uh, Ahmed Best's part in the Mandalorian when this happened, but uh, when Moses Ingram got all of that horrible, uh, mm. those horrible responses from people in her DMs saying awful things to her, um, when Star Wars, Star Wars Twitter account came out and said, no, we're not dealing with this. We're not putting up with this this time. And yeah. we stand by her. We don't care what you say. And then you and McGregor releasing that video, uh, saying that, if you act this way, you're not a Star Wars fan in my mind. And um, I think that those are such simple but powerful things to do that were done far too late, but at least they're happening now. And uh, if I can only hope that they keep up that momentum, that they tackle it before it gets to the point where it got with Moses Ingram, with Ahmed Best, with John Boyega, with uh, Kelly Marie Tran, and even Daisy Ridley. Daisy Ridley got rid of her social media too because of Star Wars. Uh, only got it back last year. Um, uh, Kelly Marie Tran still hasn't 
put herself back on social media because of all of the abuse she received. And John Boyega has been very vocal about how that affected him. Ahmed Best, obviously, has been very vocal about it. And so I think it, it's Star Wars maybe finally realizing that they have a responsibility to do something rather than just sit back and warn their actors that they're going to get abuse on social media and then not actually do anything about it. And I know people will say, well, how much can they actually do to stop it? You can say something. You yeah. can make it very clear that that's not welcome. You you have your, your big actors, you and McGregor, say something about it. Because honestly, like, that was so embarrassing. Like, yes, it was very powerful to have you and McGregor make that video, but it was also incredibly embarrassing. Like, how humiliating is it to get to a point in the fandom where you and McGregor has to make a video saying that if you're racist, you're not a fan of Star Wars. Like, that's so embarrassing. And I just have like, we should never get to that point again. We should be prepared to do that, but it should never get so bad that they have to do that again. And that involves being proactive instead of just reactive. I, there, there, there are two kinds of social media strategists in the world. One of them has a degree in marketing and one of them doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, the social media strategists with the marketing backgrounds are the ones who go, these people are really loud and we just have to deal, let them be loud and, and try to give them what they need so they will stop being loud. Um, and I think Disney went out and hired the right kind of social media strategists sometime after the last Jedi. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those strategists went, no, we need to have a coherent whole that is very much about social justice um, yeah. because my background is sociology or anthropology, hopefully, or something. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't do it as a coherent whole, we'll always be pandering to the angry. Yeah. Um, so I think I think what they did was they just got new strategists for their social media, um, which is a good thing, not a bad mm -hmm. thing. Um, yeah. And and I think they got the right people. I think they finally went, hey, man, we're Disney. We can pay for the right people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think what you're saying is if the right people are also talking to the right people, in a couple of years, we're going to see Ray Skywalker on a can of Bud Light. Because it seems a very similar kind of strategy there. And I still won't drink Bud Light, but I'll still praise it. Um, but but going back to what we were saying, like one of the things I was struck by the whole time you were talking, Danielle, is I remember seeing an interview with John Boyega right around the time that he said he was not going to do any more Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And everything that they did were the things that he specifically said they didn't do. He mm -hmm. said, why didn't people like Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford make videos, make mm -hmm. go on social media? Why didn't Star Wars accounts, you know, defend me? Yeah. And I I've heard now rumors that maybe John Boyega himself is gonna come back. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. But but one of the first comments I see is, oh, so he was never really upset. I think if he ever were to come back, I don't think it's in any way denigrating him leaving and being upset no. i think it's him saying they are now they did for uh moses ingram all the things that i wanted them to do for me yeah. and the fact that they did it for her that they're doing it for daisy shows me that they listened and that things have changed because i i hope this isn't the case and i hope you're right part of it's the the marketing people but i i i think that well maybe what the marketing people said was hey remember how good john boyega has we lost him listen to why he was mad we need to not do that again. I wouldn't be surprised also because 
Daisy Ridley and John Boyega are very close. They became like, I mean, all of them, I, I know, I know their friendship. We saw a lot mm-hmm. of outside of, you know, off the screen and everything. Um, and even like when they run into each other on red carpets, it's always like a, it's like a family reunion for them. They're very happy. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe, you know, when she was entering discussion, discussion, she was like, what are you going to do for this? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, but I also wouldn't be surprised if, you know, as you said, John Boyega saw what they did for Moses Ingram and feels a little bit safer coming back to Star Wars. And the fact that the director for this movie is a woman of color. Uh, he's said in also his interviews about, you know, the movies he's chosen to do in the past several years are all led by, if not black people, people of color, because that's who he wants to surround himself by. That's what he feels most comfortable or that's who he feels most comfortable around. And I don't blame him after what he went through in Star Wars because he wasn't surrounded by those people and look what happened. Uh, and I, I just think that changing who's behind the screens, changing who is working on this stuff, who is, has the experience and has the power to say something and to make actual change makes it so that it would make perfect sense if John Boyega chose to come back. If he chose to, if he felt like he was safe enough and he felt like he wasn't just setting himself up for disappointment again, because I think it's very clear that he was disappointed with where Finn's story went too, that it wasn't what was told to him when he signed up for the job. Also worthy of note, and this is, it's a tiny thing, but I think it's again, part of the same overall story the Star Wars uh, Lego special that came out, the uh, Summer Vacation one, it's silly and fun, but in it, Obi-Wan goes to Finn and says, you are a Force user, you were supposed to be a Jedi, I'm going to train you to be a Jedi. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's just because someone had that fun idea. Like, somewhere along the way, that was a, hey, this is a story we need to get back in. Um, And I don't think Lego is canonical yet, but, you know, (laughs) it's it's a sign they're doing that. What else can you tell us about the Ray movies uh, that you learned at Celebration, either in terms of just like other tidbits that came out or got announced or just other stuff uh, from talking to other people who were there? Uh, There wasn't, I think all that, I heard all that there was, was the the director whose name I'm blanking on right now, um, but it is a woman of color directing and that Daisy Ridley is going to be back and that it's going to be 15 years after the end of... Uh, episode nine and it is uh ray is setting up a new jedi order um or something along those lines and we're going to see that but that was all the information that was given no year of release or anything like that i don't even know which movie is going to be released first because there were three announced um which one they're they're you know aiming to get out first but I just remember hearing from people who were actually were lucky enough to be at the celebration stage, which was the live state where the people actually came out onto the stage and everything, uh, that it was just such a joyful moment. Uh, Daisy really looked so happy and excited to be there and like overwhelmed by the response and yeah, that it was just, it was a great time. Uh, the director's name is Charmaine Obeyed Chinoy. Yes. Um, yeah. um, and also and the Ms. writer Marvel. is going to be, say again? Oh, yeah, she did a couple she of uh, Ms. episodes of Miss yeah. Marvel, mm-hmm. which is awesome. 
And then the writer is going to be uh, one of the writers of Peaky Blinders, Stephen Knight. Yeah, that's right. So uh, if Peaky Blinders is anything to go by, we're either going to have a significantly higher rate of curse words <laughs> than we've ever had in a Star Wars movie, or the writer is just going to have someone with a red pen following him around. They're going to have a Brummie uh, accent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, what's your thoughts on it, Matthew? Because I... To me, this is the one I'm most excited about. A, because I do love Ray. I love these characters. And, and in some ways, I'm finding my love for the sequels isn't... In the same way that The Clone Wars helps me like the prequels a lot more, the the sequel, the, the shows, and especially the books, are helping me better understand the sequels a lot more. But for me as someone who especially has always been somewhat critical of the Jedi, has always thought, well, what if there was a... You know, is Kanan and Ezra a different way to be a Jedi? Is Ahsoka a different way to be a Jedi? I'm really excited that we might really get to wrestle with what does it look like to rebuild an order of non-Dark Side Force users? Uh, where, where do you fall on that? It's going to sound like I'm conflicted, but I'm not conflicted. Um, I'm very excited. Um, but my, my ongoing critique every time something new is announced is I don't want more narratives filling in details from existing narratives. Hmm. I want narratives hmm. from elsewhere. Hmm. I want it to yeah. be a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future or another side of the galaxy where nobody knows anybody that we've already met. Um, and I think the other two sound, one of them, the Filoni one sounds like it's just like more details in the Mandalorian era. Mm. Um, the other two, theoretically, I, I should say, therefore I'm not excited by the Ray one, but actually I am because they have to go someplace new with it. And it's 15 years into the future where we've never been before. So yeah, it does right. feel new. Um, and that is a thing that I'm very much looking forward to. Also, um, Mrs. Maisel is one of my favorite TV shows. <laughs> um, I hope we, I, I hope we find. Okay, I think the Mandalorians are the space Jews, um, and I think that's great. Um, but I hope we get more space Jews. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, j just to f clarify on that, the fact that it was an episode of the Mandalorian that aired during Passover in which one Mandalorian said the words, our people have always been on the, aid, the edge of extinction, but we always survive, which is quite just about literally a quote from the Haggadah, the prayer book that many Jews use during Passover. Like, yeah, the space Jews 100% confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually are going to do, um, uh, Matthew and I, along with uh, a rabbi, uh, if you know him as a uh, pop culture rabbi on TikTok, yeah. the three of us are going to do a whole conversation about diaspora and religion. I didn't know and we were the doing this. We, we're doing oh, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for cluing me in. You're right. You're right. You, just volunteered right there. So um, but yeah. to finish your question, yeah, I'm very excited for the ancient one and the Ray one. Less so for the Filoni one, which is weird because I kind of like Filoni. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of in the same space. I'm obviously very excited for the Ray one because I was worried we would never get Ray back, and I'm very happy yeah. that we are. Um, but I am very excited for the Dawn of the Jedi one because mm. we've never explored that before, and for it to be, it's about the first Force users or the first Force wielders, um, and I think that's so fascinating. I think that that has like you know such a. a a new, a new perspective, I think, on the Force than what we've seen yeah. before. And maybe leaning a little bit more towards, you know, like High Republic-esque, but even more so because by the High Republic time, they were still already uh, caught up with the Senate. But I'm very excited to see where both of those stories go. 
And I don't think it's coincidental that we'll be getting Rey, Rey creating a new version of the Jedi around the same time that another set of movies are talking to us about the creation of the original Jedi. Yeah. Obviously, the questions are going to be similar. And, uh, you know, I... It's one of those things where I don't want it to quite go the MCU route where, like, you know... Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, the the ancient texts that got rescued that we know are in our bag, we're probably going to watch <laughs> them get written in these original movies. So, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's going to be, like, uh, some level of coordination. I will just say, in terms of that the, the middle movie, I have a particular interest in it. And, and I get where you're coming from. Um, Matt, I, 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 or Matthew, I, I definitely feel like a lot of the times when people fill in details, it often creates conflicts, hmm. I think. Like, and I, I, I'm on record of this, that I, I, and I may be too much of an original movie, original trilogy purist, but a lot of Kenobi felt wrong to me because it didn't fit my understanding of where those characters wind up in A New Hope. But the flip side of it, like with the Clone Wars, I feel like... One of the things that happened with the prequels is I didn't really understand how we got from point A to point B. And so being at point B didn't have much emotional resonance until the Clone Wars showed me that. Hmm. And with the sequels, I really liked Force Awakens. I thought it did some really great things. But I also think it skipped out on doing what I think is one of the hardest stories to tell, which is what happens when a rebellion wins? Hmm. What happens when rebels have to start governing. And I mean, it's the Hamilton, it's the second half of the Hamilton story, you know, governing is harder. And having just the, the, the new government be blown up and go back to being rebels was a fun story, but it avoided that. And I really liked watching in The Mandalorian that like, yeah, we're trying to figure out what to do with the former Imperials and we're not always doing it well. And maybe we're using some technology that's kind of space torture, but we're justifying it to ourselves. And how do we... Uh, in some of the books, some of my favorite of the books that have come out, particularly about Princess Leia as, as a as a member of the government of the New Republic, mm-hmm. they really go into the politics of how do we hold all these things together, and and so I've really been enjoying the way that the the, the Mandalorian and the Bad Batch and other shows like that have been exploring that as well as so many of the books. So I'm that's why I am hopeful, but I'll, I'll grant you it is my exception to my rule because for the <laughs> most part I'm like. Please go to new times. I don't want to hear the name Skywalker again, except for Ray. I don't want to see Obi-Wan again. Like, give us new people, new times, new stories. That one, though, I'm excited about. A, because I just, I do love all the characters we've been introduced to. Uh, but also because I, I I think I will enjoy the sequels a lot more if you, if we, the more we do to fill in the gaps to get to there. Hmm. Yeah, that makes but- sense. My my metaphor is uh, an American historian metaphor, but the rebellion is George Washington and the governing is John Adams and John Adams is just not exciting. Yeah, I was going to say it's a it's a it's a hard story to tell yeah. after I mean, the I, rebellion. I, as, as somebody who is, you know, short and plump, I love John Adams. I love John Adams a lot. Um, but the one thing he did that's really heroic is he lost an election and left. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and he didn't even think about not leaving. He was just like, okay, and he left the first time that happened. That's not a Star Wars movie. Yeah, yeah, that's I. It's I hear it. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say it's it's how do you 
tell a story that isn't inherently exciting for a visual medium and make it exciting for a visual medium. I think that's why the books are so good at this. Like you said, Princess and the Scoundrel and uh, Shadows of the Sith uh, have done a really great job of, of showing that political side and that transition between the rebellion winning and then turning into the New Republic and all the messiness with it that goes into it because you don't have to be visually exciting. You don't have to maintain someone's excitement on screen because people yeah. are used to what that looks like on the page. And, um, and, and so it's like, I think that's why we're seeing this story being told within a story. Like you have the Mandalorian, which is this exciting story about this guy and his adopted kid, uh, going off on adventures. And then inside that you have the, the story of the new Republic. And then with Ahsoka, we have a beloved character already who is on this mission to find Ezra and find Thrawn. And inside that you have the story of the new Republic. And so it's like one of those things where it's like, it almost can't be told on its own because Mm -hmm. it's not visually exciting on its own. It has to be woven into another story, if that makes sense. That's how it feels to me. Um, I think it's exciting on its own, just not visually. I will say as the political science major, instead of the history major, I'm perhaps more excited about it. Um, (laughs) And also I will defend John Adams because my first introduction to that period of history was 1776, the musical (laughs) in which John Adams is the hero. And I later learned in American history that it's about as historically accurate as Hamilton, (laughs) which was disappointing to me. Um, and, And maybe here it's where that what we need is more TV shows about it, because to me, I mean, like the West Wing is one of the, I think, yeah. the greatest TV shows ever made. Or even, like, I mean, with, with less of the horrible violence and, and sexual violence, but, like, Game of Thrones or, or House of Cards or some of the other shows that are about political intrigue, I think there are some great stories to tell, but I also think, as you're saying, um, it's entirely possible to get more of the story of the New Republic, but not by focusing on the senatorial chambers, by focusing on characters like Mando and Carson Teva, the X-Wing pilot, uh, traffic cop turned spy master, you know, all these different characters who are tangential to the story, but at least they're going to be the background against which we, we learn more about the story. See, I think you could do the senatorial chambers thing, but you need time. You need a long yeah. season. You need uh, a long season where the episodes are focused on a single outcome or, you know, a, a, a focal right. point, a single focal point. And I don't think you can get that with eight episodes that average 32 minutes you may be right and i just i think that's maybe the problem because i do get it like i i love the you know i'm a huge uh, i used to watch binge watch svu so i'm like very much into the (laughs) i'm very much into the 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 intrigue of you know this the silent excitement the quiet excitement Mm -hmm. of of shows but those are long seasons. Those are getting to know the characters over time and allowing that space. And I think the only show we've really seen that has allowed for that is Andor. Right. And, um, if you wanted to do a political esque senatorial chambers in the empire or first order, you would need to do it in the same vein as Andor but have it just yeah. more focused on the Mon Mothmas and the Luthans of it instead of going off to, you know, the side. No, not the side. And, <laughs> Says like, something that I can think of Cassian <laughs> as a side character. That's one of my complaints of the show. Uh-huh. Well, and I, I, I totally agree with you. And I know that my tastes here are weird. You know, I'm the person who thinks Marvel Civil War 
would have been a great movie. I think it is still one of the best Marvel movies ever made, <laughs> but I think it's even better if we get half an hour of Captain America and Tony Stark sitting in a room debating how to make the Sokovia Accords better. That's not going to go on a buzzword. But I also think I... What you're saying to, is you like Star Trek. Yes, this is also true. Yeah, but I also think, true. to me, Andor actually is a great example. I, like, I think that just through The Mandalorian, I have learned far more about the New Republic and how the First Order came to mm-hmm. be than the, the sequels ever gave me. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I like I'd love more of that stuff, but I'm also just saying I think movie, more movies and TV shows that keeping us the Andor slash Mandalorian, like we're, we're not going to take the camera into the senatorial chambers, but we're going to let you see how the people are reacting. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, the, the, the level story. That's to me what is exciting about it. Not that I think we're going to get... West Wing, you know, West Wing Coruscant. I'd love that, but I don't think we're ever getting it. It's like half West Wing and half Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They do politics in Battlestar very, very well. Yeah. Uh, Which we might see a good deal of in The Acolyte. I'm so Uh, excited for The Acolyte. Talk to us about what uh, what you learned about The Acolyte. Okay. Well, again, I didn't get to go to the Lucasfilm Showcase panel, but I did manage to, because I know a person who knows a person, got a reserved ticket for the High Republic panel. Um, and I went just excited to learn about phase three, what we're going to get in the coming years. We got all of that. It was very exciting. And then at the end of the panel, um, they were talking about something about live action. And everyone is like, the Acolyte? Are you talking about the Acolyte? What are you talking about? And the the Michael Siglin, who's in tr- the creative director for publish, Lucasfilm Publishing, um, was like, no, we don't have anything else to say. We don't have anything else to say. We don't have anything else to say. And I said, okay, that's the end of the panel. And then he goes, is the live stream cut? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? They brought out Leslie Headland who is the creator of the Acolyte, showrunner of the Acolyte. And we're already freaking out about that. The way she spoke about the High Republic was so refreshing, and I think a huge relief to High Republic fans of the books and the comics, uh, because when she went in to pitch this show, um, I think most of us knew that she didn't know anything about the High Republic because it was still in the planning stages. The authors were still Mm -hmm. getting together, timelining everything out. And so Kathleen Kennedy told her, oh, we have an era that this story will work perfectly for. We're doing it in the books. And I hadn't heard anything else about that since then, just that she didn't know until that moment. She tells us on stage that she heard that and she said, I need to know everything about it. So she went and spoke to the people in publishing, the authors and Michael Siglin, um, wanted to know all of their plans, um, all the stuff that was going into the higher public because she wanted to respect what was there and she wanted to respect the fans that would come out of this and you barely you rarely hear that in star wars you rarely mm-hmm. hear a creator for a visual medium actively going to the people who wrote the books that are even a hundred they're a hundred years before the show is taking place but going to them and wanting to respect it wanting to work together instead of you know just taking over and being like i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do Maybe it'll fit in with you. Maybe it won't. Um, No, she worked alongside them. And that's why the wardrobe looks, the Jedi robes look like the Jedi robes you see on the covers of the books and little things like that. And so that was very refreshing. 
then we got to see the trailer and everyone freaked out because we weren't expecting a lot of us hadn't made it into the lucasfilm showcase panel so we were like yeah it's good to see the trailer it looks like andor with lightsabers it looks amazing it looks very grounded um it was kind of hard to tell like i wasn't <laughs> honestly i was freaking out so i'd can't really tell you exactly what happened in the trailer but it does look like it's going to be like a more grounded take and um just really exploring based on what leslie headland said exploring how the jedi go from where they were to where they are at the beginning of the prequel trilogy mm. and kind of like what's what's ter- what's forced them to view things a certain way what has forced them to go away from certain things and I think she said it was like a mix between Frozen and Kill Bill. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very intrigued by that because I feel like Take I like that. Voice. Yeah, <laughs> I like it because it's like, you know, the angsty, like greediness of Kill Bill, but also the lightheartedness and sweet aspect of Frozen and mm-hmm. um, maybe not as soul shredding as Andor was. <laughs> so it'll be a little easier to watch week to week. Um but that wasn't it. That's not where it ended. We watched the trailer. Uh, they were talking about how they wanted to bring an actor out to us. And they said that um, she was going to be playing Vernestra Rowe, who fans of the High Republic know well. And um, yeah, so Vernestra is going to be a part of the Acolyte. And, and just for those who don't know it well, that... That person is a descendant of Martian Rowe, who's kind of been one of the main antagonists of the the book so far in the in phase one, especially. Am I correct there? No. Okay. No, no. So her her last name's spelled differently. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, and she's she's uh, Mary Allen. She's not um, the species that Marcion Martian, however you pronounce his name, is. Okay. Uh, but she's a Jedi, and uh, she was kind of a child prodigy Jedi. She became a Jedi oh, Knight right. when okay. she was like seven, sixteen. 17, mm-hmm. um, got her first Padawan when she was even younger than Anakin. And, uh, she, a lot of her struggles have been like dealing with that, like wishing that she had taken more time. Um, she also has, well, I can't say that cause that's a spoiler, but, <laughs> but, uh, she's a very intriguing Jedi, uh, lots of nuance to her. And so it'll be very exciting to see where she is a hundred years after the events of the High Republic book series. Uh, I'm very excited. They showed us a picture of her. She looked great. And the woman playing her is, uh, Leslie Headland's wife, actually. So that was oh, nice. a very exciting thing too, because those of People, those of us who read the High Republic book series know that that is the queerest part of Star Wars and the most inclusive part of Star Wars. And so it felt very meaningful to have the the creator of a show set in the High Republic be a lesbian woman and having her wife be this character from the High Republic book series that we love so much. Mm-hmm. So it was very exciting. That was probably my second favorite panel uh, of my time there. Very fun. I, I think I know what your first is, but I want to talk about this just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I will also just say that E.K. Johnson's Queen's Shadow, Queen's Peril books, I think, are equally queer. But <laughs> yeah. that's not a whole era of Star yeah. Wars. That's just three of the greatest books I've ever read. Uh, but Matthew, have you been following the High Republic stories? What, what's kind of your feeling on Acolyte and all that's coming out there? Well, I haven't been following the High Republic stories. Um, I'm I'm notoriously bad at reading comics. Um, and I, I've been trying to read a lot of nonfiction, so I haven't been reading the novels mm. either. 
So, um, you know, it's in my feed and I look at it. I have been following Russian Doll, so obviously oh, yeah. I'm excited for the Acolyte. Yeah. Um, as, yeah. soon as, as soon as that in- information was given to us... What's uh, the connection there, just for those who don't uh, know? Leslie Headland uh, is one of the co-creators of a, a Netflix show called Russian Doll, which is just... Yeah. Amazing. It's just a beautiful show. Yeah. It's yeah. just beautiful. Um, yeah. And um, the fact that um, she is... Uh, a creator who has loved Star Wars her whole life um, means a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think she loves Star Wars more than any of the three of us probably do. And we probably. Star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and when you get that, you get exactly the person you need. Um, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes in the sequel trilogy, um, the people doing the writing and the directing didn't quite know enough to like make it fit well. Um, and, you know, if we're going to try to make it fit, we should make it fit well. Yeah. So so I'm excited beyond all belief. Not as excited as I am for the fact that I get to see my favorite Star Wars character, who is Harrison Dula. Um, yes. Unquestionably. Yeah. Um, but, but, and, and, but, and that's where we're going, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. We're definitely going there uh, with, uh, with also talking about Danielle's favorite panel, uh, or at least the, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going there uh, as well as some other places. Uh, but just staying on this, I am. So let me just say my one caveat about it: that the one concern I have, and then all the reasons why I think I'm so excited about this. As I said, I the original trilogy is where I started with Star Wars. That's always going to be my baby, and I I think it's fair to say that like a lot of the things that were stated in original trilogy. The story has changed, you know, like the implications in the story in uh, New Hope is that the Jedi, the era of the Jedi was long, long ago, not 20 years ago. <laughs> um, uh, but like and, and since then, that, that, you know, you know, Luke is the only one. No, there is one other. Well, actually, there's like five or maybe 10 or maybe 15. Um, you know, one of the things that's been established and, and I'm OK with that, but I always every time there's something that kind of like bends some of that mythology or does me the like, well, technically from a certain point of view, this is still true, even though it's not quite what would be implied by the original movies or the movie since then. And one of the things that is, is certainly very implied, and this is actually much more by the prequels, is that from the Jedi perspective, the Sith are gone. 100,000, a thousand years, gone, finito. And so a part of me is like, does that mean that every single Jedi who meets the Acolyte has to die? in the show or that like they just I, I I it's gonna be important to me that they don't create a situation where I'm stuck pulling out my hair going if this person had just said something to this person then the Jedi would have known 300 years ago that the Sith were back um so that's kind of my concern but putting that aside going to kind of what you were saying uh Danielle one of the things I've loved so much with the High Republic books is that they really kind of show that, like, by the time of Anakin, the the Jedi are kind of like a religion that's become a lot more doctrinaire, you know? And that, like, one of the first characters we meet in the original High Republic, in the Phase 1 High Republic books, is a Jedi who's kind of a manslut, and in <laughs> self-admittedly. And, like, when someone asks him, like, you know, are you supposed to, you know, have sex with people? It's like, no, I'm just not supposed to have attachments. So it's like, okay, so Jedi can be boys they just can't be uh, in committed relationships um that, that's obviously a wildly uh, uh humorous way of saying it but the point being it certainly seems like there's a lot more like looking the other way 
and laxer interpretation of the rules than there is by the time of the uh the the prequel era and so i'm really excited to see that and i'm really excited to see the 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 sith and kind of more of their philosophy and ideology i've always thought that emperor palpatine is a wonderfully like chill down the back of your spine villain but in terms of the kind of era we're in now of you want a villain to have a reason and not just be mustached palpatine twirls a mustache like no one has ever <laughs> twirled a mustache before um and so getting to see more of the Sith who actually perhaps have motivations and reasons beyond just power, ultimate power, I'm really excited about. And then just the last thing, and again, building on what you both were saying, as I think Kathleen Kennedy has done wonderful things with Disney and with Star Wars, I think that in the same way that John Boyega, they, they treated all that really badly. I think the overall decision to cut loose the extended universe, the first canon of books, was probably what was needed, but that it was handled very badly. Mm. And it was handled in a way that felt very insulting to the people who had loved those books. And then when they did bring in some of the stories or themes from those books, they never gave any credit. And so seeing that again with the High Republic, it feels like they're doing something very different, that they're really honoring the High Republic stories that, that, you know, you said this creator from the Acolyte, because even with like Tales of the Jedi, that took part of the Ahsoka novel and just flat out changed them and yeah. erased some important characters. And so seeing that they're doing all that at the same time also that in some other products we'll discuss in a moment are very clearly referencing some of the extended universe canon. Um, I'm just really happy to see all that because I think having a canon that is both on screen and on page all linked together is difficult, but I think they're really trying and the Acolyte's going to be a really exciting expression of that. Well, and I just want to say that that is, from what I heard, it seemed like that was very much the creator. And I think that that's, it's, it's Leslie Headland pushing for that. It's not mm. anyone at Lucasfilm okay. pushing for it. I think they would have let her tell whatever <laughs> story she wanted to and not forced her mm. to work with the higher public team. And I think it was her, she said her massive respect for the books, uh, Star Wars books, because that's all she had for decades, uh, waiting yeah. for the prequel trilogy. It led her to want to be respectful to the High Republic books and to the fans of them, because she was a fan herself of those books. Um, I think that anytime you have a big franchise that has an IP, is you're going to have, like, IPs are handled poorly everywhere. <laughs> They're handled mm -hmm. poorly with every big fran franchise, and Star Wars is no exception. Um, I know in Marvel, uh, with MCU, those IPs are handled absolutely horribly. No one ever gets any credit. The only person in Marvel to really get any credit is Stan Lee, and I think a comic creator in one of the most recent uh, MCU movies or shows got credit. G. Willow Wilson got credit for in Miss Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, but... It's just like it needs to change at a franchise level. They need to have yeah. better uh, the, the writers and contributors to the IP need to have better rights. They need to be paid better. They paid quite well, but it's at the loss of their rights and at the loss of getting any yeah. future credit to the characters that they might create or the events that they might create. And it's a it's a whole mess in publishing. Uh, but I wish I'm, I'm glad that there is now a creator, especially for the higher public. If I had to pick a time, an era in Star Wars that I wanted the creator to be so respectful to the books from that era, it would be the higher public because they mean so much to so many people. Uh, so I'm glad that we're at least getting that. 
Yeah, I think that's really going to work. And I appreciate that pushback that it's maybe not coming just from Lucas, it's coming from her. Part of why I thought that it might be, and again, this might be an isolated incident, but, and this is a good transition to where, where Matthew, I think you wanted to go, is I know the, that Timothy Zahn, who is the author of the Heir to the Empire books and the creator of uh, Admiral Thrawn, um, we, and those books, they were not the, technically the first of the extended universe, but I think most people think of them as having launched the extended universe. There's at least some of my favorite books. I'm rereading them recently. Some parts don't hold up so well, but that's fair enough. Um, but he's actually been brought back in as a consultant, and in that Ahsoka tra uh, trailer, as a lot of people understood, <coughs> when Ahsoka says the words, Thrawn is back, the heir to the Empire, my understanding is that the, the EU part of the world went kind of crazy. Um, so, Danielle, what was that? What was kind of the reaction around the, the Ahsoka trailer, both in general, but also in specific in terms of the direct call out of those books? So I was at the Ahsoka panel specifically where we saw a <coughs> remixed version of the trailer that wasn't released to the public. Um, and that's where we saw a couple things that weren't in the original trailer. So one of them was actually seeing Lars Mikkelsen. Um, if you've seen the poor image, poorly fixated image that someone took with their phone, don't believe it. <laughs> he looks much uh -huh. better than that. Everyone in the room was like, he looks so good. Um, so we got to see him actually turn around and see his face, hear him talk. Um, we also got to see <laughs> Sabine wielding Ezra's lightsaber and um like several instances of that so very exciting uh where we heard about the books was Filoni talked about Thrawn I think that <laughs> listen I love Dave Filoni he does not have the best track record with staying true to books that have come previously. If he does, they're legends books um and I know that a, a large part of the Thrawn fandom and Timothy Zahn himself has kind of seen a different side to Thrawn in the canon books. And so I know that there's a lot of worry. There has been publicly a lot of worry about how his character will be handled. Um, and, you know, if there will be as much nuance as his character deserves or if he'll just be like a straight-laced villain. And I guarantee you that Dave Filoni has seen that on Twitter. And I think that was a big reason for him mentioning specifically at the panel that they were in talks with Timothy Zan. The way I understood it and the way that he worded it to me came across as this was a fairly recent thing, that it wasn't mm. something that has been happening since he started planning the Ahsoka show. Um, he said, I think he said, we started conversations with Timothy Zan. We've been in okay. talks with him. And the Ahsoka show, I think, has already finished filming. So I wouldn't be surprised if they started talking to him relatively in the recent past and maybe ended up doing some reshoots. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying that that's the truth, okay. <laughs> but the, 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 and that's good to know. Yeah. The vibe I got, the vibe I got from hearing him talk about it, like that's, and I don't know if that's bias. I've not read the Canon Thrawn books. I've not read the Legends on books. So I don't have a, I don't have a card in the game. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really have any stakes in this. Um, but I do know people who are fans of both of them and their concerns for the show. And so I don't know if I'm being biased by that, but when I heard it talk, it did very much seem like he was speaking as a, like, I want to placate the audience 
because they're being really, really loud on social media right now. Mm -hmm. And I want to say something that will placate them. So who knows? I'm excited for it regardless. I think it's, I think it's going to be fun. I think that we have Lars Mikkelsen. I think he understands Thrawn great. So. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. I mean, I, I admit, I didn't watch the Ahsoka trailer itself until this morning, Mm. because for the most part, I'd been like, you know, normally my stance is I don't want any spoilers. And then I was like, how can I invite people on to talk about the place where they saw all the spoilers without seeing the spoilers? (laughs) So, okay. And I feel like having Ahsoka, like, describe Thrawn as the literal title of those books Like, that's clearly so intentional. But, yeah, it's it's, it's, well, it's, it's interesting whether that will be a well, – go ahead. Well, that was one thing I, I meant to say was that the reason I brought up the difference between the, the Legends Thrawn books and the, now can, the new canon Thrawn books is that all that – when Dave Filoni did talk about the books, he talked about the Heir to the Empire books. He didn't mm-hmm. talk right. about the canon books. So I imagine that for some people who are, like, big canon Thrawn – book fans that was a bit concerning that he didn't mention those so um you know who knows again I don't have any stakes in it because I've not read the books I'm not a Thrawn girly uh, I like his character but <laughs> yeah I mean the internet has been rife with and it started all up again after celebration but was going on for months beforehand One of the most popular topics to debate that I think sometimes are very good faith discussions, sometimes are just fandom at its worst, (laughs) are the, is Thrawn a anti-hero? Is he a villain? Is he a fascist? Is he, you know, justified? And I I think one of the things that gets most frustrating is, as someone who who has read all of the novels and, and, and loved the Lars Mikkelsen portrayal, I feel like there are three different characters. Mm. Legends novel Thrawn, canon novel Thrawn, and Rebels Thrawn. Mm. And they have fundamentally different motivations and fundamentally different moral stances. And yeah, I'm both really excited, but I also, I'm going to kind of brace myself for where the fandom goes. And it might be that, um, I'm sure you're both going to be invited on to talk during the Ahsoka show. It might just be that we're going to have a like, the five minute Thrawn check in and then (laughs) done with that topic and move on to other things. Uh, But Matthew, talk. the, the Harrison duel of it all, everything. What was your reaction to the Ahsoka trailer and all the stuff we're, we're seeing about it? Like all trailers, I wanted more, but I think that's kind of the purpose of trailers, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm, so it worked very effectively for me. Um, right. I, I really hate the idea of fan casting. Um, one of the things the three of us are doing here um, that all fans do is like, Try to figure out how the creators did the creating stuff, right? Yeah. And we're like, Filoni this, or, or, you know. And I, I really think we have to recognize that we don't know what the hell is going on behind mm-hmm. those doors. Yeah, it's true. Um, and everything we say, we're like, we are, we're almost always leaving out a creator who should be in the narrative we're telling. And that creator almost always is a person of color or a woman who's in the background. And we say Dave Filoni. And it mm-hmm. bugs the hell out of me. Um, so I don't like any of that kind of lead up stuff. Um, but I've been, and thus I've been suspiciously surprised at myself for liking the casting of this show so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anything about the woman who's playing Sabine, but she definitely looks exactly the way I would have expected her to look. Um, and I, and Harrison Dula is my favorite Star Wars character. <laughs> 
She just is. Mm-hmm. Um, because she is a excellent leader and there are virtually no good leaders in all of Star Wars. Um, none of the people we say are good leaders are good leaders by any objective standard. She is. Um, and she's in a stable, healthy relationship. Which right. is also <laughs> unusual. Um, and those are the two reasons I love her. And I expected that they were going to cast somebody who I was worried didn't have the acting chops to do it because they cast a lot of people who are not good actors um, who then affect the quality of a show for me. Um, they cast somebody who looks like she should be the right person and is also a really good actor. I mean, she just is. Everything I've seen her in, she's been <clears> great in. I was like, yay. So now well, For I'm, those who don't know, who, who is the actress and what has she been in? Um, oh, gosh. What is her name? Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she was in um, the best season of Fargo, which is where she met mm-hmm. her husband, um, Ewan McGregor. Um, she was in Scott Pilgrim versus the World um, as the like person Scott Pilgrim wanted to change his life for. Um, it was a wonderful, horrible movie. Um, and um, <laughs> she was in um, the Birds of Prey movie, so the Harvey Quinn movie. Um, and she yep. was great in that. She, everything she's, seen, the, she's the huntress in that, she's right? She's the huntress. Yeah. And everything yeah. I've seen her in, she's capable of different kinds of acting and different kinds of stories and just does a wonderful job. And since it is my favorite character, I was like really excited that they cast somebody who I think can be the quality actor. Um, and I, I expected that that was not going to be the case. Um but it is, and I'm happy as, as can possibly be to see the possibility of um, a good leader in Star Wars be represented in live-action Star Wars. It's just, yeah. It makes me happy. So that's where I'm at. Um, I'm excited, as excited as I get for things. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. The question I would have, though, um, which is, Danielle is our on-the-ground ethnographer there, um, <laughs> um, is... How is the representation of the characters other than Ahsoka given to you while you were there? Because um, if they're all just secondary background characters that we see twice, I will be disappointed. It should be an um, ensemble. Well, Sabine is definitely not a background secondary character. Um, mm-hmm. Based on what I saw, we, so we got a lot more of her in the trailer that we got at the Ahsoka panel. Um, Based on what I saw, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if there are two storylines happening in the show, one for Ahsoka, one for Sabine, and then they come together. Um, And so I think I would very much believe that Sabine is a second main character. Uh, As far as Hera goes, I don't know. I think we got maybe like another extra scene of her. Um, but yeah, I don't, I wasn't really given any indication of how she would be, but the way the actors talked about them was that there was one thing that, um, Natasha Liu, I think is her name, who's playing, uh, Sabine, um, the way that she talked about, um, Sabine's relationship with Hera was very promising, um, that they spend a lot of time together, but they both know when they have to go their separate ways. But when they say goodbye, it's more of a see you later. Um, we're going to go do what we need to do. It might separate us for a little while, but we're going to come back and see each other again. And so it's a very much still the family relationship that we see in Rebels, uh, the close relationship that they have. And it seemed like they knew enough about that to where I'm pretty sure we're going to see that on screen. We're going to see them, like their relationship 
And even if they might have to go off on separate things for a while, they will come back. So it does seem like it's going to be quite a collaborative effort because they all seem very close. Rosario Dawson, uh, Natasha Liu, and Mary Elizabeth Weinstead seem very close. So especially the the latter two. So I have high hopes yeah. for Sabine and Hera's relationship because they seem like they spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yeah. There's a picture of the three actresses both in and then out of costume. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, I hope Sabine had so much fun. The actress playing Sabine had so much fun because clearly the other two are spending five hours in the makeup chair every day. <laughs> and Sabine has to put on a wig yeah. and, some, and like, you know, 20 minutes of eyeliner stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... There's so much there. There's there's so much of the story we're going to see. And I one one thing that going back a bit to Mandalorian, but one thing I noticed that was then pointed out in an interesting way is, you remember how at the end of the Mandalorian it does that shot where it it fades to just a circle mm-hmm. around Grogu and the frog, and he puts the frog down, and then it winks out. It was pointed out to me that three Star Wars movies have all ended with that cut to a circle: mm-hmm. Phantom Menace, A New Hope. Force Awakens. Mm. And so in each one, that circle is the way of saying that this is the end of part one. Mm. And and so my understanding is that Ahsoka, I know, Daniel, you can say if, either if I'm right or wrong or you heard anything about this, but that Ahsoka and some of the other stuff is going to be part two of this kind of ongoing, a few years after Jedi story within the Filoni movie being part three. I imagine. I didn't hear anything different, but... There were, so Sabine looks two different ways in the trailer, at least the trailer I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, she has long hair in a couple scenes, and then she has short the short hair we see at the end of Rebels, similar to what we see at the end of Rebels um, in a couple scenes. And so there's a lot of theories going around. They not, didn't confirm this. It wasn't clear from the, either trailer that I saw um, of how that happens. Does the story, does right. the Ahsoka story start... Um, where we see rebels or does it start years later when they've been unsuccessful at finding Thrawn and Ezra, but Ahsoka's mm-hmm. still been on his trail and she, Sabine was just like, I need to step back. I need to like get on with my life. Yeah. Her hair grows back and then she cuts it off to go look for him again mm-hmm. because there is a scene, um, where she's kneeling in front of a helmet. And I don't know if it's her helmet or, um, Ezra's helmet, one of his helmets, but it looks very much like when Kanan is about to go save Hera and he's kneeling in front of his thing and then he cuts off his hair. So that would be a very symbolic mm. parallel moment where Sabine, like a, a connection between her and Kanan, she's sitting there right. deciding that she needs to go off on this journey and what might happen, she doesn't know, and she cuts off her hair. So, but we don't know. So it's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. I'm glad they showed us those two versions of her because it leads to like speculation, like what's going to happen? Is it going to pick up right where Rebels left off, or is it going to be several years later? Or what's the time span right. of this? We don't know. So that's exciting. Just, I think you just made me all verklempt. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. But I'm very yeah, excited. What, it, 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 oh, that's that. See, and that just opens a whole new storytelling doors. But because what I was thinking is, and maybe I'm totally wrong here, you know, we've already seen Ahsoka playing a part in the kind of ongoing Mandalorian verse, mm-hmm. um, you know, in Boba Fett, Mandalorians, things like that. And Sabine, her own story, 
like part of the things she does when she goes off to explore on her own is about the Darksaber and is about Mandalore. And I feel like part of why I brought up that kind of like the part one thing is I feel like this this is very much meant to be in that same universe with a continuation. And I really want to know how Sabine feels yeah. about what happened to Mandalore, you yeah. know, and I I don't you know, I, I don't. Did, did she and Bo-Katan ever meet in canon? I don't... Yeah, they met in they Rebels, because right? she, she gave Bo-Katan the Darksaber. That's right. Yeah. And, and so part of me, like, I mean, some folks were wondering after the announcement of the castings at Celebration, if that meant that we were going to see Thrawn in Episode 8 of Mandalorian, mm-hmm. especially after he was teased so heavily. There's a part of me that kind of wondered, like, will Sabine come back yeah. to join Bo-Katan for the liberation of Mandalore? She didn't. But I'm really curious to see where is her story going to tie into yeah. all of that. Um, and, and is Bo-Katan going to come join them in some way? Um, and is anyone going to ever say the word Satine? I know. Because it's a fun name <laughs> and it has some relevance and maybe it would get dropped. So anyway, um, we've been gone on a long time. There's two more topics I want to hit. Um, uh, and I thank you both for your time. We're not going to go too much longer, I promise. But first, just uh, Danielle, there's one more panel that frankly I think is the most exciting and the most important one at Star Wars that hasn't really gotten discussed much uh, because of just Lucasfilm, fine, and or fine. Uh, But Danielle, you were on a panel. Talk to us about that. I was on a panel. Uh, I was on a panel called uh, Latinx Representation in Star Wars. And uh, I was with three other people, three other Latine Star Wars fans. And it was so much fun. I was very grateful to be asked to join it. And we just talked about, um, you know, just the various Latina representation in Star Wars. There was a previous podcast, live podcast, uh, similarly about it that talked about kind of, you know, the, the complaints that we have and everything. But this, Mm -hmm. this panel was kind of more about like the joy and our hopes for the future. And we talked about Diego Luna, uh, Rosario Dawson and, um, Pedro Pascal, and uh, we can't forget Oscar Isaac as well. <laughs> he often gets mm-hmm. left out at now. Adria Adrona as well. Um, and it was a lo- it was just a lot of fun. There were quite a few people there. I was very pleased. And yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun and very emotional. I think for some of us, I don't get to talk about that a lot with fellow Latina people in person. So mm-hmm. it was nice. So well, and that sounds so good. So, so I. I hope you put this on your CV. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, in that context, um, did you have to make some kind of statement or did you just all get together and just start chatting? Uh, so I wasn't a part of the original um, kind of idea for it. So the person who had applied for it, uh, he was no longer able to go to London. And so he just quickly trying to get people to, to, uh, make up the panel for him. And so we did that, but it was just kind of a, you know, we had a set of questions that we were talking about, just about our experiences and, um, talking about certain aspects of star Wars as a franchise and a representation and, um, things like that. And we just chatted and it was fun yeah. and people had lots of questions at the end and uh, lots of really heartwarming stories and everything. So that was nice. And it, it made me a lot of times it can feel like our voices go unheard, but I forget that mm. it's not just the franchise we're talking to. It's fellow fans who feel the same way. And so that was a good reminder that the things that we say and the things that, you know, I 
communicate on, you know, my TikTok or Twitter are actually being listened to, even if it's not by Star Wars, it's by people who, who have the same experiences I do or similar experiences that I do. And if that makes them feel heard and related to, then that's the most important part. Yeah, that sounds like such an important thing. And I was so happy to hear that that happened and that you got to be a part of it. Especially because for me, myself as a white person, I think there's often a real temptation to be like, okay, I, I have a black creator I follow, I have a Latina, uh, Latina creator I follow, I'm good, you know, and to to realize like the importance of pushing forward, like that that not looking for anyone to be a monolithic voice, but mm-hmm. but to listen to what are the conversations that are having internal to these things. And um, when when I was able to get you and AJ on, uh, he he's also he is Latino. Um, and and have that conversation, and most we mostly get to listen to the two of you talk about Andor and Marva and 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 the problems with that and how uh, some of it was handled. It it I think it's some of the best content we've been able to put out, and it it makes me so happy to know that like that this kind of thing happened, and also that because I know I've heard how much you I, I've heard you talk about your frustration about that the story of Marva and and how her taking taking. Um, I want to say Din. Um, I've been such a Mandalorian. Cassian. Uh, Cassian, <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, that that left such a bad taste in your mouth. So getting here that there was that discussion, but also there was such a discussion about the joy. Uh, it sounded like it was exactly what was needed. Yeah. Is that is that panel available? Is there a link to it? I think there will be. Uh, I know we okay. recorded it. Uh, I just need to okay. see if it's been put up yet or not. Okay. So. Yeah. Uh, it will probably be a week or two before this goes up, so you can see if it has. But cool. if not, I'll promise fans we'll put it up when it happens. Okay. Um, and then that was kind of the last thing. Is I just want to hear more about just what it was like being at Celebration itself. Um, the Andor po- panel you mentioned, if there's anything from that you want to talk about, but also just in general, like, just what was it like being in that atmosphere? Oh, it was overwhelming. Um, the first day, it was so weird. So it was four days. I was there all four days. And I'm glad I was because... Most of the time you're there, if you're going to panels, you're spent in a line <laughs> waiting. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go to a certain booth, you're in a line waiting. And in a queue. In a queue, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so that was most, that was like Friday and Saturday for and, and Monday a bit for me was just waiting in a queue. And Sunday I actually got to explore a little bit and go around and see things. And that was really fun. So I highly recommend, like, if it's possible, if it's in your means, when if you go to Celebration, to get all four days because you can spread everything out and you can, you don't have to worry. You can have a day where you're not going to any panels and you can actually experience the atmosphere <laughs> instead. Mm-hmm. Um but on Friday, that was the first day, uh, so much stuff happened. So I got there, I got my timelines book and my path of vengeance book. And then I went and waited in the queue for the Andor panel. And then after the Andor panel, I ran to the live stage because I had a feeling Diego Luna would be there. (laughs) And I caught the last eight minutes of him on the live stage, elbowed my way through the crowd. (laughs) There was a big crowd. I was like ducking under people's arms, pushing through them like, sorry, got to see Diego. I need to be in here. And um, I got to, even I'd just been in the same room as him, but it was different being, you know, a little bit closer. Uh, And I got to hear him. He does this thing where usually when he's on the live stage, at the very end he speaks Spanish and he speaks to his people and uh, that is always very emotional for me to see 
someone on a Star Wars stage speaking Spanish. And it, it means a lot. And to be there in person, hear it with my own two ears, was very overwhelming for me. Immediately after he was on there, Katie Sackhoff was on there. And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows how I feel about Bo-Katan and the throne pose. And she did the throne mm-hmm. pose. And it's like, I'm just living it up right now. Um, I, we talked about this on my other podcast. The, the amount of sapphic fan fiction that was written just in that moment when the armor and Bo-Katan are flying into combat and they share a look, you know, as they, and it's just like the most sapphic moment in Star Wars. It was so good. Listen, I gained many a follower on Tumblr after writing about Bo-Katan on the throne scene, on the throne. Um, but before I knew it, it was already closing. It was like 7 p.m. already. And I was like, I can't believe this much stuff happened in one day mm-hmm. and I still have three more to go. And then all of a sudden it was Monday, the last day, and I was like, oh my God, where did the time go? Um, But by far the the best experience for me, besides just being surrounded by so many Star Wars fans, I I think people were so often by ourselves, (laughs) like, and having to explain to people what we like about Star Wars, having to explain our Star Wars tattoos, our shirts, all this stuff, and to be in a place where people were just like, I like that shirt, oh, I like that tattoo, and you don't have to explain it, you can talk about anything, don't have to explain it, was very refreshing, and for once, I think in my life, I felt like I'm a normal person amongst these people. (laughs) I'm not, you know, just this kid who likes Star Wars or this adult now who likes Star Wars. I am just one of many people here. And uh, that was very nice. But my favorite part was Monday, which was the Bad Batch panel. And I also got to meet Dee Bradley Baker. Uh, Last minute, bought an autograph for him. And... Those people who know me again know how much I love the clones, know how much they mean to me. And so to meet Dee Bradley Baker was very nice. He was very kind, uh, spoke to me in Wolf's voice, which I'll never forget. (laughs) And we had a nice conversation about Rebels era, Rex, Wolf, and Gregor. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite quotes to say is, slingin' for Drupa which Rex says in Rebels, and Dee Bradley Baker and I said it. I made him laugh, and we both said it at the same time. <laughs> I said, slinging for Jupa. And I said, this is, like, I couldn't ask for anything better than this. this my favorite line to quote, and we said it at the same time. It was great. There, there are people who are incredible actors just at acting, and then there are those who just have, like, a talent that I couldn't imagine any other human being having. And and maybe other voice actors can do this, but the fact that there are probably over 50, maybe even more than that, individual clones Mm. who D. Bradley Baker has has given individual voices to that the people who are really big fans could identify Mm -hmm. as distinctly different voices. And like having it be one actor, because the idea being that all the clones have the exact same vocal cords, but that it's different voices... It, it is one of the, like, he, there's some kind of lifetime achievement Emmy he deserves, yeah. you know, or something like that, because it is just, and, and you know, I think the, if you could go back in time and have it not be a white person doing the voices <laughs> yeah. for characters who are supposed to be, you know, not people of color, that would be better. But 
his singular talent is so phenomenal. And that's the thing I've always wondered about is, does he have that recall that someone can go up to him and be like, you know, can you do Cut-Up's voice? Can you do Mayday's voice? And yeah. and I'm guessing Wolfie is one of the more requested ones. <laughs> like, it might be that, you know, that one clone we meet in season three, episode 10, who dies in the episode, he probably is going to have no idea who you mentioned, yeah. it, but maybe he would. I don't know. Um, it, it is just such an incredible achievement. So I'm so glad you got to have that. And one thing I would want to mention about the other actors you mentioned, as frustrated as I am, and I think a lot of people were, that the name Satine was never mentioned during Mandalorian. Uh, I saw an interview with Katie Sackhoff shortly after the show came out in which she was talking about her understanding of what Bo has went through. And she said, you know, of course, for Bo, all her memories of her sister mm-hmm. and of the last time she was here and of Satine ruling and, and that... So hearing Katie acknowledge that her portrayal of Bo-Katan was holding all of that in her mind and in her heart, that that made me feel a lot better about it. You know, that I, I still wish that the someone had mentioned it, but the actress acknowledging that that part of the story is huge and would have been in Bo-Katan's mind during those scenes and that she had that mind when acting, I, that really meant a lot to me. I think that that is probably why so many of us were like, she's going to say it. She's going to say it. Because it was right there, and not just in what she was saying, but in how she was saying it. And I think that that is due to Katie's acting and her keeping Satine in her mind, even if she wasn't in the writing. Um, But yeah, I love listening to Katie talk about Bo-Katan. She understands that character better than anybody else, I'm convinced. (laughs) I didn't think I could like, like... I saw her in a couple things after Battlestar and was just like, nope, she will forever be Starbuck to me because you're so good at Starbuck. And I think now she's, she's Bo-Katan primarily Bo-Katan. Yeah. Uh, have you seen Battlestar Galactica? I haven't, no. But I saw a screenshot it, and I was like, I might watch it now just for her. <laughs> it, it is, for the acting, it's very good. For the Katie Sackhoff thirst, it is very good. There's a whole range of reasons to, uh, you know, I like Mia Grey Bear and Edward James Olmos is just absolute chef's kiss and, and i we're now going off on a, a big old tangent here but i got to see him at a fan panel talk about how important it was for him to be uh, a latino actor in space yeah. in Battlestar galactica and he edward james almost has just been one of my favorite actors for a long time but he's he's so good in Battlestar. um can i can i just say really quickly that at the bad batch panel we got to see the season three snippet uh like kind of like little t- tiny teaser trailer Mm-hmm. And your girl Danielle is very happy with what she saw. <laughs> nice. Nice. Dangle that in front of us. Don't tell us what you saw, but you know, that's awesome. That's awesome. Katie's, Matt, any other? Kate, Katie Sackhoff tells a story about getting cast for Starbuck um, that I think gives a good indication of how she thinks about fandom. Um, because she was pretty young when she got cast. Um, yeah. And it was a gender swap character. Um, but she had never seen the original Battlestar, and um, she called her dad, and she went, I got the part. And he went, who are you playing? And she went, Starbuck. And he went, you have to go rent the original Battlestar right now. <laughs> um, and, and then she, her follow-up to that is, and then I knew what I had to do to make it my character hmm. um, and, to, and, and to make sure that I did it in a way that was respectful of what the fans had expected. Yeah. And when she says that, I'm like, she understands what she's doing when she's in an IP. Yeah. She yeah. really does. Yeah. And I appreciate that about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I And I know that the some of the actors who were involved in the original 
were not happy about some of the things that were happening, including the gender swap of Starbuck. <clears throat> and my understanding is that her, her, uh, her, her the actress's respect for uh, the original and, and the way she talked about it was a part of what brought some of them back. So, mm-hmm. great wow. stories there. All right, well... I think that's about where we're going to wrap it up. We do have a Patreon section, which I'm going to accuse these two of causing me mental damage because of uh, my play of The Last of Us Part 2. <laughs> but we'll get to all that in the Patreon section. Uh, for now, um, for either of you, if there's any last things you wanted to say or else just kind of tell us where people can find more of your stuff. Uh, you can find me on TikTok at Written in the Star Wars and on Twitter at DannyS394. I also occasionally write articles for Temple of Geek and you can just find them under my name, Danielle. Um, and just, you know, Google my name. I'm old and I'm on Facebook. Um, and, um, but if you, if you do, you'll find my uh, series of books, um, academic books on um, game studies right now. Um, and since the DLC just dropped for the New Horizon game, oh, yes. um, as soon as we're done here, that's what I will be going to do. Um, nice. Because, because they, they last of us... Um, the character in Horizon by by indicating what her sexuality is in the downloadable content, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a horrible place to do it, but I'm glad they did it anyway. So, so, <laughs> so that's Fair. the book I'm working on now, um, but you will see all of my other books as well by nice. just Googling my name. And of course, I'm The Ethical Panda. You can find all my stuff by just going to theethicalpanda.com. There you'll find Twitter, Facebook, all the ways to reach us. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, were you at Celebration? Did you have thoughts? Were you not following along? What did you think of all this stuff? Uh, please write in. Let us know what you think. Uh, of course, also there you'll find information about our Patreon. Uh, it's the best way to help support the show. Uh, I love doing this. It's a labor of love, but it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. And we'd love to, to if you're a fan of this and want to help support it, just a couple bucks a month, you get access to the bonus content. You get merchandise. There's all kinds of great stuff you're going to get. So please check all that out. Please check out my two wonderful guests. And uh, mostly, just thank you as much for listening. We have spoken. All right, welcome back to our patrons. And uh, this is going to include some spoilers for The Last of Us Part 2 video game, uh, which is a little bit of a niche thing and different, but if you played it, listen it, it along. It is not a niche thing. Well, it is somewhat different than Star Wars. You're right, it is not a niche thing. Um, uh, but so... And I, I'm going to say that I've not finished the game yet. So, uh, and I'll tell Ooh. you where I am. But I just, first of all, I want to congratulate both of you because the number of times I speculated on parts of the story, <laughs> or I talked about the parts of the story I was mad we didn't get, that we did get, that we got. So I applaud you both for that. <laughs> but when I told you both I was playing, the amount of therapy I need. So, where I am in the game right now is. We got to the point that honestly I thought was going to be the end of the game mm. because several times we watched <laughs> we watched Ellie go on her vengeance quest, mm-hmm. and then we watch Abby go on the exact same vengeance quest, and it's just all of these moments of these two characters are blood enemies, but they're so similar, and I love them both, but I can't love them both because they're totally against each other, but I totally understand both of them, and also they're making terrible choices. And we get to, we've played all of Ellie's story, now we've played all of uh, Abby's story, and they have their climactic fight, and Abby could kill Ellie, but just lets her walk away. And we fade into the most cottagecore lesbian bliss scenes that I've ever seen. (laughs) And 
I thought that's where the game would end. And I thought that would be, okay, that's the the misery of vengeance never gets anywhere. We're just going to move on. And now I've just gotten to the point where Ellie's like, nope, need to go have Peace some more out. vengeance. <laughs> and I was like, part of me was, like, I, I remember, uh, Danielle, you, t- I'm just going to do this monologue and you all can then talk about anything I just said. I remember you talked about how hard it was to play Joel at the end of part one, where you're like, you don't agree with what he's doing, but as the character, you have to do it. And Mary and I, Mary, my spouse, has been playing the game. I'm just watching. She was like, I don't want to press these buttons. I don't want to take Ellie back on this vengeance quest. But here we are. Um, (sighs) Trans representation, queer representation, all great. And some of the hottest sex scenes I've seen on screen (laughs) in a video game. Wasn't expecting that. But just, if you don't mind not spoiling beyond what I've just talked about, talk to me about... uh, this game is such a mind f. Like, tell me about, talk to me about it. The best explanation I've seen for it, um, and this doesn't spoil where you're at right now, is that. Mm. Um, so when you're playing as Ellie and you're in the cinema or the theater, uh, there's a, yeah. a, a a pamphlet you can pick up that's about the last play that was played there, and it's Cassandra. And for those of you who don't know, Cassandra is a Greek tragedy play where Cassandra uh, has uh, the gift of knowing what is going to happen, but no one will listen to her. And it's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, a vicious cycle that never ends and no one will listen to her. Uh, she tries to tell them, they just keep going. And there have been many people wondering, like, who's Cassandra? Is it Dina? Is it Lev? Who is it? And I saw someone say, no, Cassandra is the player. We know yeah. where this will lead. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. We, we know where this will lead. Um, and we, keep, we don't want to press those buttons because we know what's going to happen. We don't want Ellie to kill Abby in that fight at the theater because... We know that Ellie and Abby are the same in the same way we don't want Abby to kill Ellie. Like we're trying so hard to to keep it from happening, but you have to press those buttons <laughs> to go yeah. to the next stage. And um, you you don't want Ellie to to beat up Nora because you know what's going to happen to her if she does to her mentally, what that's going to do to her. But you have to do it anyway. And it's it's all of those things combined, but the story plays on anyway that's the cycle of vengeance and uh, that the story hasn't yet broken up. And so it's, it's so good. I I had never thought of it that way before until I saw the video. I can't remember who posted it, but the minute I heard, I already loved the last of us part two, but the minute I heard that explanation, I was like, that is why it's so good because of the intention behind it and the, the the intention to take this tragedy and make it so that the player is an active part of the game even though we can't change anything yeah. we are having to experience these emotions and not be able to do anything about it and that is its own tragedy in and of itself alongside the rest of the tragedies in the game but yeah <laughs> And there's something so beautiful about, like, because I think one of the most interesting moral stories is, what do you do when your only choice for survival is to be part, is to be a part of 
something terrible. Hmm. You know, you're you're a worker in a fascist state or you're, you know, whatever it is. And the, and the, the moral choices we, we make, and it's often I think the choice is like you shouldn't do the terrible thing. You shouldn't be part of the terrible thing. But it's easy to say that when it's not you who has a gun to your head. It's not your children who are starving to death. Mm-hmm. It's whatever it is. And and it's very hard to it, rep- recognize the terrible thing except in hindsight. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what the story is. It's all these characters making these terrible choices because we outside can see the cycles, that especially because we got to see both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they both see the other as a monster and we get to see them. And it's just, but we know that they're going to have to make those choices anyway. Um, one of my favorite parts is that, and the reason why I think, so back when the last of us part two first came out and even still today, people hate Abby, (laughs) which Mm. I, it's like they, they reached a point and never crossed it the way they were supposed to playing the game. Because when I first played the game and we get to the end of Ellie's part of the story and it switches to you're playing as Abby back when, right before her dad dies, yeah. I was I was a little upset. I was kind of like, I don't want to play as this girl who killed Joel. <laughs> I do not want to play as her. I don't want to sympathize as her. I don't want to feel bad for her. No, I don't want to do it. But I kept going because I was like, I'm going to trust the process. I'm not going to not finish the game. And I kept going. And I, Abby is one of my favorite characters, period. Mm-hmm. I think the moment I truly accepted her and accepted that I loved her as a character and not just dealt with her and not just, you know, said, okay, whatever, but actually loved her was when she says to Lev, you're my people, you're my people. And I was like, you can't hate that character. (laughs) You can't, you can't not love someone who after doing such horrible things, pushes away her comfort pushes away everything that she's come to know over the past few years for this one person whose life now means so much to her. She Mm -hmm. and Lev are Joel and Ellie, but less toxic. (laughs) Um, And I love Joel and Ellie. I love them so much. But if I had to pick a pair that made me feel nothing but good feelings and nothing but content and happiness, it's Lev and Abby. And that was the moment where I was just like, I love Abby. I don't want her to die. I don't want anything to happen to her. I just want her to have the peace that she has sought for so long. And she sought it in wrong ways. And she realizes that now. And now she's trying to seek it in good ways. And what's so interesting about that, I just have to say really quickly, is that we follow Ellie's story of vengeance in the first half. But Abby's half isn't a story of vengeance. It's a story of redemption. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's why so many people had issues with her because we, you know, up to the point where you're at, we don't see Ellie's redemption. We see her devolution into a violent person, but we get to see Abby's redemption. And so I think that people wanted to see at that point, Ellie's redemption and in the way that we got Abby's, um, and maybe that's why they couldn't accept it. I don't know. I thought it was beautifully done to show the Abby's at a different journey. Abby's at a different point mm-hmm. in her journey in this game than Ellie is. And um, when you and Mary finish the game, if you need to have a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> Please do. Oh, oh, we're not doing a phone call. We're doing a podcast. <laughs> you, you both have volunteered it, to be on that one. Apologies. It, 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 
you you think the game has ended and it has not, and I can't say anything. Yeah. But um, emotionally, okay. emotionally, it's even harder than what you've experienced yeah. thus far. Is that a, again? Is that I, a non-committal was, way of putting it? I will send you a bill for therapy, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, but it it is just talking more about Abby's character. You're right. I think there's something so fascinating about like, on the one hand, getting to see a character's descent. Whereas with Abby, the first time we meet her, well, it we meet her first as just this other person who's on a journey, and they seem just, like, interesting, and, oh, hey, she's in another love triangle, so there's a weird kind of parallel there, but then we see her kill Joel, mm-hmm. and it's it's heartbreaking and devastating. Brutal. And I think you're right. It's so, yeah, brutal. It's so interesting that it's, like, so you see her at her very depth, then you go back and see the start of her mm-hmm. like fall and then now to see her yeah going back to to and rescuing lev and all of that um my uh everything about it is just so interesting and the way it breaks the conventions um i think there was some of this in the first game but but especially in this game mary keeps talking about one thing she loves about the game is the atmospheric environmental storytelling mm. because you could completely miss this. You don't need it for the plot, but all through the game, there's all of these pieces of paper you pick yeah. up and read, and through them, you hear, you learn the story of, you know, the fall of see, you know, Fedra in Seattle getting taken over by the these the wolves, the 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 what was it the the Western the the W uh, yeah Liberation Front yeah WLF yeah. the wolves, and then also that now they're in this battle with this religious cult. Um, that's going on and that that Lev and her her uh, that Lev and his sister are a part of um, which, which is so well done and and just the like there's a part of me that wants to go back and do a chronology because it's hard to keep track of it all but that because there again because you're seeing these letters and we as the audience know so much it's again a Cassandra moment mm-hmm. because it's again it's like I want to go find the people writing these letters I'm like don't trust Isaac don't trust the the sanctuary people this is all bad um and that gets to the thought that I've been having that that Matt Matthew you and I discussed a bit on on Instant Messenger, and this is a whole larger topic. I don't want to go very deep on it, but like you know, Thomas Hobbes had this idea that like if you let humanity devolve, it's just going to be every man for himself and every group for themselves, and no one's going to listen to each other, no one's going to trust each other. And as I watch the fight between the wolves and this religious group, that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that like. No one can trust each other. No one can listen to each other. It's always shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah, I still think that the, the, the problem with using Hobbes in this situation is I don't think that's quite exactly what Hobbes meant. Um, but 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 you're the perfect person for this, Matthew, because we in those notes, in everything, we get the a really nice representation of the growth of a new religion. Hmm. Um, and and how the followers corrupt it almost as soon as the founder is gone. Yeah, um, which yeah. which we have never seen before in all of world history. Um, <laughs> and um, and both the WLF and and as you call them a cult um, are doing exactly what Hobbes is claiming we have to do, which is create societies. Um, mm. And um, so it's 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 far more Jean-Jacques Rousseau than it is Hobbes to me. Um, mm, um, that's fair. And I, I I like I like Rousseau more than most people do. Um, and I think it's really important that we see that you get both 
You get the attempt to create society and the failure of not including enough. Hmm. I, I guess for me where it's coming from is that as the player, at least when I'm in the game, I keep watching the character finally and I see all these bits and pieces. I'm like, I want Ellie to go and talk to the people from that society. I want Abby to Abby to go interact with them. And I get a scene where it's like, oh, cool, we're about to... Oh, nope, everyone just pulled out guns and we just shot all of them. <laughs> but but, but, um, but, but the, the, the Lev-Abby relationship and the you're my people thing is exactly mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 is, it is the creation of a bridge across cultural difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is I, kind of the purpose of life. I think that that's something that Owen was reaching to... And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, Ellie killed him. <laughs> R.I.P. <Yep. laughs> <Yep>. Owen. <laughs> Oof. And just speaking of the Owen of it all, and this may be a weird thing to say, but this is at least how I saw it. And I, I've found some other creators who kind of had similar perspectives. Um, I love the queer representation in this game for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. But one of them is, and granted, I don't know what's going to happen with Abby's character, and I imagine that if I search for Abby Ellie fanfic, that's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of that out there. There is. <laughs> but if you told me that there's a story that has two women, one of which is small and, and, and isn't feminine by any means, but looks kind of like, you know, looks femme, to, even if that's not her presentation, mm-hmm. and another who has, like, you know, ripped muscles... And, and looks very like, you know, this is a person who either does hard work every single day or hits the gym, and then tell me that one of those characters is in a sapphic relationship, I'm always going to assume it's the broader, larger, <laughs> muscular one. And so to have that flipped and to have these two great, um, uh, you know, storyline. and granted, I feel like there's a lot of romance between Ellie and uh, Dina, the, the scene we get with uh, Owen and uh, Abby seems much more like, you know, passion and tension and stress relief in a hard situation. Um, but obviously there's a lot of mixed up feelings there. I just really appreciated that. And I really appreciated that they didn't go with the stereotype and, and let, let show that, yeah, like any person can look any way and still fall into any sexuality. And it's not, you know, the jockier one isn't by definition the queerer one. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I see some videos sometimes or tweets about how they're like, we refuse to believe that Abby would be in a straight relationship. And I'm like, you're falling into the stereotypes by saying that because I think it was I think it was intentional and beautiful that they had that flip and that yeah. it shows that Abby is this muscular, strong, independent woman who... Owen still wanted to be with who at the end of the day Owen loved and appreciated and would have given his life for and I think that that is a really powerful message to show that you know there is no one right way to look based on your sexuality and you know it doesn't matter I mean granted Ellie is the most lesbian looking character I've ever seen. I'm sorry. I'm falling into the stereotype myself right there. But, but um, well, I think if you're a fellow queer person, then she, you see Ellie yeah. and she reads gay. Yeah. I think to a lot of straight people, she does. Okay, like, that's fair. To a lot of straight folks, you look at Ellie and you look at Abby and that's the... Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I have come to the realization over the years that straight people don't read queer coded things as easily as I once thought they did, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so yeah, I love that aspect of it. And, um, mm-hmm. 
I just, yeah, I just think it was just brilliantly done on multiple levels. Still one of my favorite stories. I will say, and maybe this is going to be resolved at some point, so you don't have to say if it is, (laughs) but the one thing that feels like, let me ask it this way. When you have characters for whom 80s music is an important thing, as are cheesy jokes and puns. Mm -hmm. And now you give me a love triangle in which one of our main characters is now with the person who used to be with a person named Jesse. (laughs) Why has no one made a reference to Jesse's girl? Like in Glee, they literally named the character just so they could sing the song Jesse's girl. I don't know why you name that guy Jesse if your main character gets with his girl and then no one mentions that song. Like, so my 80s music love had to come out there. Damn it, Neil. Um, <laughs> um, but just on that, the one other thing that I'll just point out, and again, don't spoil anything, but you can at least talk about maybe, you can either just share knowing glances about my, my ignorance or just say if, you, if there's something you picked up on. And again, maybe this is because I've seen the show not played the first game. But obviously in the sh- in the show, but also as I understand the first game, like we learned that it was the the, the conditions of Ellie's pregnancy, uh, when her, Ellie's mother was pregnant with her and the exact moment of her birth is a big part of why she is uh, immune and thus potentially a source of a cure. And it feels like the fact that we keep meeting pregnant characters, um, that there's there's some significance there that I'm seeing of that that that's a theme somewhere or that that's going to matter in some way. Um, I guess this is a dumb question to ask because I'm asking you to spoil without spoiling it, but I'm just kind of curious if while playing the game, you picked up on that in any way. Well, I will say that in the first game, uh, we're not given the details of Ellie's birth um, in the way that we are in the show. I believe Neil had already written it, or he and his co-writer had had written it, had an understanding of it, but they didn't put it in the game. All we knew was that Ellie's mother died shortly after giving birth to her and left her the knife. And in the game, we get a letter from her. Um, and that was it. We didn't know how that she was bitten before, right before giving, or when their umbilical cord was still connected connected we didn't know any of that um so i don't know i don't know that i ever really picked up on the significance of pre- except for the fact that dino was pregnant and um uh oh what's her name oh my god why can't i remember her name owen's oh, n- baby mama nora? not nora oh mal 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 yeah um mal, yeah. that um Dina was pregnant and Mel was pregnant. And then the whole Lev saying, or Ellie saying, don't, she's pregnant. Abby says, good. And then Lev says, Abby. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, other than that significance from it, I don't know that I ever picked up on. No, you're, on and I guess part of what I was wondering is, was there going to be another immune baby created? But even the story that I've gotten to, Dina has already had her child. So. Oh, yeah. JJ. Yeah. Which you can't imagine what those two J's came for. <laughs> um, all right. I, I've so, kept you all both so much. I, I will say one last thing for you, though. Um, so the creator of the two creators of the TV show include Neil Druckmann, who did the game, and the other guy, Craig Mason. Craig Mason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who, in an interview, um, talked about the decision to have um, the birth scene. Um, and 
the way he puts it, because both of these men are like serious menches. They're really nice people, right? Um, and uh, the way he talks about it is this. He says, um, we talked to, to each other and we decided that we wanted to make sure we included as many people who were actors in the game into the, in the series as we could. And Neil called me and said, well, here's who Ellie's mom is going to be. Yeah. And I went, that is the biggest moment of genius I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, and um, it was it, it was already in, in his head to yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, and um, the way the reception of the other of the television creator is just beautiful because mm-hmm. it is it is the most perfect inclusion I could have imagined. I never would have come up with it myself. And for any of those who don't know what we're referencing, the, the voice actress who plays Ellie in the game, plays Ellie's mother. Yeah. And a dead, we did a podcast about Danielle so eloquently stated, I forget the exact word, but you basically said, like, the woman who gave birth to her also gave birth to her. And it was yeah. Just such yeah, it a was a beautiful statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's also so helpful that Greg, Craig Mazin is such a fan of the game, and he was before. I don't, I, I said this in the other podcast as well, I don't think we get the story we got in the show if we had someone who wasn't Craig Mazin as the the TV creator. Yeah, I think it's very true. All right, well, any other last things? Danielle, do you have any other last word you wanted to say before I let you go after a very, very long recording session that I'm so grateful for? Um, I, You still have multiple teary moments left in the game, so enjoy that. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. But, then, let, they, let but then they have that big, like, kumbaya moment where they pull out the guitars and sing Jesse's Girls together. So <laughs> yeah. just, oh, there we go. As long, as long as it happens. <laughs> um, that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get sued, but I'll use that as my theme music when I do the recording on the full episode. L- <laughs> let me just ask that as the last question. When they had that moment, because they fade to black and it stays black for a long time before then fading back in on Cottagecore happiness. Um, in that last moment where, where you have the Abby-Ellie confrontation, did either of you think, and then it fades to black, did either of you think that was the end of the game or that when it faded to the two of them that that was just an epilogue? Yeah, I thought that was just going to be an epilogue. Um, I think I also thought that there was just going to be an epilogue after Ellie's part. Uh, mm. because it was already so long at that point. I didn't know how long the game was. It's and a really long game. Yeah. yeah. So there were, I think, two or three moments throughout the entire game, at least two, maybe three, that I thought that the game was over. Yeah, so. I would agree. Yeah. Cool. Well, all right. Thank you both so much. Thank you to our patrons for listening to all this. Hope you really appreciated it. I know I learned so much. I I'm now going to go bug Mary to go play the game some more. (laughs) So thank you all so much. We have spoken. Mm -hmm.